Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January 27, 2016. This is episode 1718 of the Survival Podcast. I am in recovery. I'm in recovery from a three-hour monster show yesterday on quail keeping. I, I need to learn that my Q&A shows will never be the simple, easy, you know, Jack takes kind of a, a break show that I, I think they're going to be. But that's great because that means that a lot of you guys had questions. It turns out I missed one question on yesterday's show. I'll fix that this coming feedback show because today's show is different. If you usually skip through the intro section or whatever, don't because there's no real intro section today. We just had it. Uh, I'm doing a special preemptive intro to this show on a specific content uh, based on a video that I saw this morning, and then I'm going to have our special guest John Pugliano on. So what I'm actually going to play for you right now is the audio from a video uh, where you're not losing much because she's just standing there talking, there's no graphs or anything, from um, an attorney, constitutional attorney and talk show host out of Florida named Chris Ann Hall. This This lady is spectacular. And... She's having a discussion about all this stuff that's gone on. Most of you know uh, with the Bundy standoff, the, the, uh, Armand Bundy was arrested. Somebody was shot. I think somebody was killed. I haven't actually gone down into the weeds with that right now. I, I know there will be plenty of after-action reviews uh, of that to come. And I don't want to go down into the weeds with this today because it's only a symptom of a larger problem. Um, Chris Ann here is going to give you more of a macro view of this problem. What, what's actually the, the larger overriding issue at stake here? And instead of worried about, well, did they do this right? Did they do it wrong? Did the government do it right? Did the government handle this wrong? What's actually the problem? And then I'm going to give you, before I bring John on, my take on this that goes a totally different way than I think you would expect, because it goes right to the heart of what I believe the true problem is. But ladies and gentlemen, one of my new heroes, Chris Ann Hall. I'm Chris Ann Hall. I'm a constitutional attorney, author, educator, and talk show host. Let's talk about Oregon. Because it's not about the Hammonds. It's not about the Bundys. And it's time to take back the narrative. It's time to stop being directed and led by the media. It is time to stop being directed and led by the federal government's whims. It's time to know the facts. This is not about the Hammonds. This is not about the Bundys. This is about a federal government that is operating outside the supreme law of the land. The people are not acting lawlessly. It is the federal government that's acting lawlessly. The federal government has no authority to own any land outside Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17 says that the federal government's only authority to own land is 10 square miles for Washington, D.C., and the amount of land necessary to operate forts and forts at the permission of the states. So if the states don't want the forts and forts anymore, they have the authority to withdraw the permission. The only other section that someone could claim is Article 4, Section 3, Clause 2, that deals with territories and then further uh, expands or further expounds on the 
application of the ownership of land that we talked about in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17. Let's be very clear about this territories thing. Go read the Constitution. Territory is capitalized. This is a proper noun with a specific meaning, and the federal government owns no territory within the continental U.S. Territory is not even land that the government owns. Territory is land that the government holds in trust for the states. Once a state petitions to become a state and a member of the union, that is no longer a territory, and the federal government has no authority over it. You see, once a state petitions and becomes a member of the union as a state, it is an independent, free, and sovereign government. It's called the equal footing doctrine, and even the Supreme Court of the United States upholds this doctrine. It says that every state that enters the Union enters on the same footing as the first 13. Go read the Declaration of Independence. You'll see what that footing is. Independent, free, and sovereign. You cannot be a territory and be sovereign. You cannot be a state and still be a territory. The federal government has no lawful control over any land in the states outside forts and ports and 10 square miles for Washington, D.C. Show me in the Constitution the authority for the Bureau of Land Management. I challenge you to show me because you cannot. There is no authority for the federal government to dictate to the states or the people how they operate their land. Do not recite to me executive order. There is no phone or pen big enough to alter the Constitution. Do not cite to me congressional act. Congress cannot pass laws to alter the Constitution outside Article 5 amendment process. Article 6, Section 2, Clause 2 says that no law made by Congress contrary to the Constitution is valid. Alexander Hamilton said the same thing in Federalist Papers 33. No law contrary, no law outside the Constitution is a valid law at all. The Bureau of Land Management, the federal government controlling our land, is a law that is lawless. It is outside the Constitution. Do not tell me the Supreme Court said this or that because the Supreme Court does not have the constitutional authority to expand the power of the federal government or create new powers. That is not the role of the, of the Supreme Court. They don't even have the authority to be the ultimate arbiters of the Constitution. James Madison, the father of the Constitution, tells us in 1798, as he's arguing before the ratification of the Constitution, hey, the, the Supreme Court of the United States is not above the states. The Supreme Court of the United States cannot make law. The Supreme Court of the United States is not the ultimate arbiter of the Constitution. James Madison so very clearly explains that the ultimate arbiters of the Constitution are the states themselves. They are the creators of the contract. They are the drafters of the contract. They are the uh, people, the ones who actually ratified the contract creating the federal government. The states are the creators of the federal government. They are the controllers of the federal government. It is time for us to understand the proper role and function of our government. Do not tell me Marbury versus Madison. That is circular logic. The Supreme Court cannot create an opinion that expands its own power. 
When the Supreme Court is the ultimate arbiter of its own power and its own authority, that is not a constitutional republic created by the people. That is an oligarchy where the power rests within the government itself. James Madison said, when the government controls the property of the people, that is not a just government. We need to realize that this is a constitutional republic, government instituted among men, deriving its just power from the consent of the governed. If the federal government is not defined by the Constitution, why do we even have one? If the federal government is not limited in its power by the Constitution, then what is the limit of the federal government's power? If the federal government can dictate to the people and to the states how and when they can use their land, you are not a freeman. Freemen have control over their property. And when government dictates how you operate your property, the only thing missing in servitude are the physical chains. This is not about the Bundys. This is not about the Hammonds. This is about maintaining the integrity of the Constitution. This is about defending the Constitutional Republic. This is about making a defined and limited federal government that is under the power of the people in the states. So it's up to us to decide. Do we get led by the nose of the, of the media narrative? Do we get controlled by the oligarchical power of the federal government? Or do we declare ourselves freemen? As our Constitution says, government instituted among men deriving their just power from the consent of the government. It is time to know the facts. It is time to stand for the truth. It is not about a person. It is not about people. It is about liberty. It is about power of the people. And it is about a limited and defined government. So I ask you today, what do you want? Do you want a constitutional republic where the people control the government, where the states are independent and sovereign? Or do you want a totalitarian oligarchy where a federal government decides what power it can have and, it can own, and, and how it can use that power with a pen and a phone or a law? Do we want an unlimited federal government? Or do we want to stand for what's right? Do we want to stand for what's true? I don't care what your politicians say. I don't care what your favorite uh, presidential candidate says. The Constitution is the foundation of America. And if the federal government can set that aside, there is no limit on it at all. It's time, America. It is time to defend the republic. And it is time to put the federal government back in its limited and defined box that will only happen when the people know the truth. Time to make that decision. If the people wish to be ignorant and free, wish, wish for, for what never was and what never will be. Understand, we are the holders of the power. We are the owners of our property. And when a government dictates property, we are nothing, we are nothing but tributary slaves. Well, let me tell you what I love the most about that video. 
Do you hear the couple times she had to stop and think and restate something because she didn't have it exactly the way she wanted to say it? There's people that would pick on that. I think that's fantastic, and you know why? There's no script. There's no teleprompter. That is a woman speaking her mind from a very educated position, and as you might think, that is what I want to hone in on here. I'd like to ask you a question. I'd like you to consider the following for me. How would this nation be different if the average American was as educated as this woman is? Now, I'm not talking about her, her legal education from law school, because what she knows here, I guarantee you, wasn't taught to her in the hallowed halls of our university. Rather, the structure of how law is formed and how it works and how to apply it was what was taught. This is independent thinking. This type of thinking does not come out of Harvard or Yale or Princeton or any other fine institution or legal school. This comes from the thought process of the individual being educated enough through classical educational theory, the trivium, and the concepts of grammar, logic, and rhetoric to be able to actually think for yourself, to take in ideas, to understand them, to disseminate them, and then to bring them back to another person in a way that they can be understood. Let me tell you, This is the very reason the education system in this nation, going all the way back to the middle 1800s, was switched from one of education to one of programming and control. This is why. This is the very reason why. I'd like to read a quote for you right now. Going back to even further than the middle 1800s, when this system was truly fully installed. There's a guy named John Dewey who is considered the father of modern education who went to Europe and specifically Russia at the time, Prussia, and examined their educational system and brought it to America. And he is rightly considered one of the people that instituted this monstrosity on America today. But he really isn't the father of this. He was building on uh, Jonathan Fitch's work, who was around from 1762 to 1814, Here was Fitch's opinion on public education. Education should aim at destroying free will, so that after pupils are thus schooled, they will be incapable throughout the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than as their schoolmasters would have wished. When the technique has been perfected, every government that has been in charge of education for more than one generation will be able to control its subjects securely without the need for armies or policemen. The schools must fashion the person and fashion him in such a way that if he simply cannot will otherwise than you wish him to will. Let me read that last part again to you. The schools must fashion the person and fashion him in such a way that he simply cannot will otherwise than what you wish him to will. That is the genesis of so-called education in America. And this woman's words are exactly why they have done that. It's exactly why they have done that. There is there's actually no other legitimate explanation for it. Because I want you to honestly answer for yourself a question right now. I want you to truly go deep inside yourself and not take this as just entertainment or a jack rant or something like that. I want you to go into your soul, whatever that is for you, And I want you to honestly answer this question. In a nation where at least half of the people 
were as educated to the reality of what government is supposed to and not supposed to be able to do under their own contract as this woman, where half of us were this well educated to the truth, just half, how would you govern those people to the level we have governance today? How would you do it? Think for a moment. Inside, you know the answer. You couldn't. It would be impossible. See, I don't think that people truly understand consent of the governed. People think that means the electoral process. People think that means the, the, the Constitution. People think that means a piece of paper. People think that means laws that people have agreed to and, and put a name to. No. Consent of the governed means exactly like what it sounds. The people are the governed and the, the people in government are the governors. And it doesn't matter what the law says or doesn't say. How much consent we grant to them determines how much control they actually have. And we have consented, boy. We have consented in a big way as a people. And I know some of you are saying, Jack, I have not. But the people have. The vast majority of people have. Long ago, this nation sold its very soul for security. It sold its very soul for a softer, easier way. It sold its freedom for a bowl of porridge. That's what we've done as a people. And I do say we, because we're all part of it. Even those of us who have awakened up to reality, we were part of it at different degrees at different times. And most of us still are in some way, because there is a control mechanism in place. But let me tell you what's really going on in the society. By taking over education, what the government has done is instead of educated, it has programmed its citizens exactly the way that quote reads. It's programming. TV producers do the same thing. That's why it's called programming. Have you ever thought about that? They don't put movies on. They don't put uh, documentaries on. Not when they discuss it in boardrooms, not when they even discuss it directly to you. We put on programming. That's the science of determining what's going to go on. Programming like a freaking computer, and the computer is our people. Garbage in, garbage out. It works with people, not just machines. But this is the cure. To educate the people to reality. And I know there are some people that will say to me, but Jack, you're an anarchist. You don't even want a constitutional republic. You want a stateless society. Well, Jack Spirico is also a realist. I know what I want, but I know what I'm not going to get. But I also know that in this nation, I am told by those in power, those in charge, that there is a social contract that I am bound by. A contract that was made without my consent at my birth where a piece of paper called a birth certificate made me a corporate entity that the state could tax and borrow money against my very life. I'm not happy about that, but it is what it is. But then, by God, the state should fulfill its contract. And there is no greater contract in this country than the Constitution of the United States of America. And a government that will not be bound by its own contract deserves not the loyalty of its citizens to be bound by the same. That's how I feel about this.
Yes, I would like a completely free society with no coercion and no theft. But if you're going to tell me that I have to be bound by the laws of this nation, then so should the government. So should the government. And I already had somebody object to this line of thinking on Facebook and said, it doesn't matter because they have no authority over our guns from the federal level either. But look at that. It's too late. It's all gone. That's the problem. That's the problem. That is the problem. What you have to understand is in our society today, it is not the zookeepers controlling us. It's our fellow monkeys. The people of this nation have bought into the bullshit. It's not your government's the problem. It's the people next to you in this nation that are so dumbed down, that are so programmed to believe in bullshit and believe that the government can do anything with no restrictions. And as long as they did it, it must be constitutional or they wouldn't have. People that say uh, in the Constitution it says this or it says that, who have never read the flipping document once in their life from one side to the other, from beginning to end, who say, well, my constitutional rights are, and they've never even read the flipping Bill of Rights, let alone all the amendments to the Constitution. And it's not their fault, but it is their fault. Because at some point, as a grown adult, It's incumbent upon us to take responsibility for ourselves and our lives and our children and our communities and educate our flipping selves. Because as shitty as the government schools are, they do teach you to read and write. And yet all you need to know to be able to read, comprehend, and understand the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence of a nation that was at one time the greatest nation for liberty and freedom that has ever been an actual nation. And has fallen from grace. And has fallen from greatness. Because we've gone from being human beings with independent thinking and thought to a bunch of monkeys holding each other down and we don't even know why we're doing it anymore. We're more worried about what our fellow American says than what our government does. Let me say that again and let that sink in. We are more worried about what our fellow American says than we are about what our government does. And when we don't like what our fellow American says, many of us want to get that government who's already infringing upon liberty to shut them up. Not me, not me. Oh yes, you, many of you, many of even you. When it interferes with what you think is right, what you think is moral, you want it shut down. You want the force of the state. Freedom and liberty do not work that way. The greatest... Failure in this nation is a failure of leadership. And that failure of leadership is not in the capital. It is not in the state capitals. It is not in the county seats. It's not even at the mayor's office in a small town. The greatest failure of leadership in this nation is a failure of us as individuals to lead in our own lives. And that process can only happen if we learn to lead and we learn to educate ourselves and we learn to think for ourselves. Because I'll sign off with this, on this segment. If we were to educate the people of this country to the level of comprehension and understanding that this woman you just heard speak has, we would no longer be governed by tyrants, but we would be served by our leaders. Because they would have no choice 
because the consent of the governed would be removed. I hope that sinks in for all of you. I hope it really does. I hope some of you that struggle with liberty issues, that say you're for freedom, but not for other people, really think about this. There can be no liberty unless there is liberty for all. There can be no freedom unless we all agree that in interfering with somebody's liberty through the force of the state, when they are not harming anyone else, is inherently wrong. Period. Even those of us that aren't anarchists should be able to agree to that, to be able to, to look at that and say, that makes sense. That makes sense. If they're not hurting anybody, leave them alone. The government doesn't need to be there. What if they're hurting themselves? People hurt themselves all the time. People climb mountains and fall off and die. And we don't pass laws to prevent that. People die doing all kinds of things. People get hurt doing all kinds of things that there's no laws against. And somehow people, in general, figure it out. Leave everybody alone. And that's the only way that we're going to fix this, is to educate our people, our children, to reality and break the programming. Because the truth is, this nation was formed with the greatest promise for liberty of any that was ever formed. And it never quite lived up to the promise. But at least for a time, even when we looked at things that were wrong, The general goal of the people was to get to the promise, was to fight through tyranny. There was an, an allegiance to each other as citizens. People ask me if I'm a patriot and say, can you be a patriot and an anarchist? I'm a patriot. I'm a patriot to my people. I'm a patriot to the ideas of freedom and liberty. Not a piece of dirt, not a piece of land. Not made up laws by other men to oppress other men. I'm a patriot to freedom and liberty for all. And the only way we can get even closer than we are today, just a, even move a little bit in the right direction, is for us at least to agree that that's the goal. But cowardly programmed people cannot do this. Only the emboldened the brave and the educated will stand up and not shake in fear of their own liberty. With that, let's change gears a little bit. I'm about to bring our special guest on, John Pugliano. Many of you know him. He, of course, is a member of our expert council, one of the most switched-on financial management people that I know of. Um, we're going to take a different look at things today, though, instead of like, this is you know what's going to happen with the Dow or whatever. We're going to look at kind of the macro thing, as just we looked at the macro thing with educating our people. What's going to happen? What's going to happen in the next 10 to 20 years? Are we on the verge of a nightmare? Or are we on the verge of a golden age? Or will it be a combination of the two? To help sort that out, Mr. John Pugliano. Hey, John, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack, thanks. Great to be back on TSP. Hey, I love having you here. You know, you're on like every other week with Expert Panel, but this is going to be a totally different experience because it's two-way street with conversation, and we got some deep stuff to go into today. Um, I've already told the audience that the uh, the topic today is, are we going into a golden era or a nightmare or some kind of hodgepodge of the two? Before we get into that, though, even though you are expert counsel, some people, you know, tune in for the first time today. So could you give people a little bit about your background, uh, how you got into what you're doing, what you're doing now, and uh, 
why you're on TSP in the first place. What are you doing on a survival podcast as a financial <laughs> manager? I mean, <laughs> sure. Well, hey, Jack, I grew up in Pennsylvania, much like you. I'm about 10 years older than you are, but our, our past pretty much tracked uh, very similar backgrounds. So I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, blue collar type family. My father was uh, kind of a budding entrepreneur, and uh, in, in today's parlance, he'd be considered a recycler. He um, he tore down old steel mills and, and reclaimed the bricks and the iron ore and things like that. But uh, uh, tragically, he died at about age 32 or 33. He was getting up one morning, tying his work boots, had a brain aneurysm, dropped over dead. I was six months years. I was six months at the time, six months old. So I never knew my father, and I always lived with that in the background of my mind that you know, um, the shit doesn't have to hit the fan for everybody for it to hit the fan for you or your particular family. And so that's why I've always been a prepper. I've always known that, um, you know, bad things can happen. And I've tried to live my life accordingly. The, the bad news, obviously, was my father died. The good news was that I was, my, my father figures were my grandfathers. Um, one was a railroader, one was a coal miner. And these guys uh, had not only lived through the Depression, but my one grandfather had actually uh, lived through it all. He was, a, he was a prisoner of war during World War I on the Italian side. Um, so he just had a lot of hardships in his life, but they came through all that. They endured. They were, you know, the old time preppers. He, he had a, he had a home, homestead, what I call a homestead, about two or three acres. But really what it was, he was a guerrilla farmer. He just really owned a poor little shack that was in between the, the slag dump and the railroad tracks. And every year he just reclaimed a little bit more land. And so, you know, by the time he lived to be 96, so by the time he died, he had this, you know, flourishing little Eden area there that he had developed over probably like 50 years. And um, so I grew up in that kind of a background, knowing about all those things. But like most people, like you, you know, my life took a different course when I got to be 16, 17. I, I kind of got away from that kind of a lifestyle. I joined the military right out of high school. You know, 17 years old, I joined the Marine Corps, spent four years there, went to college, kind of got into the whole corporate America thing. And... Um, I didn't. I, I knew something was wrong, but I didn't really realize I didn't fit until I was about 35 years old. But then it was too late to do anything about it. I was, you know, was trapped. I had a, a large family. I've got six kids. My wife's a stay-at-home mom, so I just couldn't, uh, you know, take a year off to contemplate my navel and figure out what I was going to do with my life. So I be at that time I became very serious about trading stocks. When I was 35, I'd have been doing it for about 10 years up till then as a hobby, and then I said I'm really going to, you know, make this work for me, and I'm going to grit my teeth and go to my corporate job every day and put up with it. I was a, uh, a um, outside sales and marketing guy for industrial products. So I sold everything from machinery to uh, urethanes, epoxies, chemicals, a variety of different products. And, um, and it took me about 12 years, but I got to the point where I was financially independent enough to start my own investment firm, um, you know, leave corporate America, do things on my own terms. And over that period of time, I ran across TSP in 2011. I got to meet you in person for the first time in 2012. And um, that really started bringing me back to my roots when I first discovered TSP. So um, and it wasn't, again, I, I was always a prepper in terms, I've always had 72-hour kits and you know, six months emergency funds, all those kind of things. Cause I, I was, I, but I, where I hadn't been was with the permaculture and that part of my life that was so integral to it when I was younger. And, and, uh, so TSP brought me back to that and I appreciate your efforts and, and the community, all, all the people that I've met in the community have been great help to me. 
You know, I, I've heard your story before, but I, I don't remember hearing that one of your grandfathers was a coal miner. Now it all makes sense. If, if you come from a family with any miners in it, there's a certain that, – that's why we get along the way we do because there's a certain thing there that is different. And, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's very difficult to explain if you ha- – it's one of those things – like Harley Davidson, right? If I have to explain, you wouldn't understand. Right. Uh, and you know what I mean. And it's it's not like I think mining's the greatest thing in the world. Obviously, there's a lot of damage done to the earth, but it is what it is, and it, it, it is what it was anyway. And yep. that part of the world, too, the mining there is different. People, you know, they look at mining and they think about, you know, strip mining and what have you. But at the time our grandfathers were doing it, they were going down under the earth. And yep. uh, there's a certain hardness there that, and a certain type of person that's even willing to do that work and it's 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 a unique thing so it is something about you today you know and you bring that up and i'll tell you you know you you know me jack i don't drink i'm a fairly straight laced guy and stuff now but i'll tell you i as a kid uh when i was a little kid i mean little like six seven eight from the time i was probably five years old to i was 12 i spent every summer multiple days in the vfw club right outside right outside the coal mine my grandfather at that point was disabled from black lung and um he tended bar and did things like that and i i I literally sat on a bar stool in the vfw club for hours on end i i learned to shoot pole and uh it was all those days the vietnam war veterans were coming home this is in the uh late 60s early 70s and um i i learned i learned more about human nature and and people in that bar than I learned anywhere else in my life. But it also taught me that I was never going to work in a coal mine and I, and I didn't want to be an alcoholic. Well, I'll tell you, I, uh, very similar. I, for me, it was either the VFW or it was a place called Los Archics. And, uh, my grandfather was in a mining accident when he was younger and he had about four or five places in his left arm where there were pieces of coal embedded in his arm for the rest of his life. And, and I, I used to look at that and think my grandfather was the toughest man in the world. And, uh, unlike you, I actually went down in, and, and into the coal holes, uh, for a very brief period of time, uh, bootleg coaling, which is another way, a nice way of saying stealing coal from the Reading Company, yep. uh, with my father as a teenager. But that convinced me that it wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, for sure. Yep. Anyway, let's, let's move on, because we're going to talk about, instead of old technology, new technology today. Um, I've been saying, you've been saying technology and automation are occurring faster than ever before, and they're going to change the way everybody works and lives, whether we like it or not. And every time we talk about that, John, I get all this pushback. They've always said this. Robots were going to run the world by 1985, and it never happened. And I, 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 I struggle with explaining to people why things are different in 2016 than they were in, let's say, 1976, when we were talking about these evolutions. Yeah, and, and things, you know, people are right though. I mean, technology has always, you know, replaced things. There's always been disruptive technology. And I'm, I'm not a Luddite where I, I don't want technology to take over. In fact, as we go through this outline, you know, we're talking about is it a nightmare or golden age? Well, it's going to be a nightmare, I think, for a lot of people, maybe the majority of the people. I personally plan on it being a golden age for me. So, uh, I'm optimistic about it, but it's, it's the rate of change. Which is different this time around, and and even when we talk about you know 2016, you go back 16 years ago. This this really the pace of change really started after the Cold War when the internet came online, and if you look at growth statistics, U.S. GDP has not averaged more than two percent since uh, the last 16 years. 
And that's even in, even in these most recent years where we are getting a little bit above 2%. That's after all the funny money and the $4.5 trillion in the Federal Reserve balance sheet, all the stimulus spending. We still can't grow the economy more than about 2%. And that is because of a lot of what we're going to talk about today, this automation replacing things, is, is why we're not seeing those growth rates. Yeah, I, I think that, like... What you're, what you're hitting on there is something that people don't really think about. You know, you mentioned the year 2000. Well, think of a cell phone in the year 2000, right? Like when ra the rate, remember the Motorola Razor, right? It was cutting edge technology. Since 2000, at the advent of smartphones and things like the iPhone and Android phones, just think of the number of devices that you used to own that have been eliminated by a single piece of technology. Yes. Everything, everything from a compass. Right to to a to a calculator to a I don't I don't wear wristwatch anymore. I was one of those guys that used to love to wear a big wristwatch. You know, I just something I always did, and I got rid of mine. You know, a couple of years ago. Just I don't even carry a watch anymore. It, do you find it ironic that so like Apple basically killed the watch, and then they're trying to introduce a watch product? Yeah. Like, and it, the, when I was a kid, like the, the the iWatch or whatever the hell they call it, I don't even I've never even looked at one. Right when I was a kid, that would have been like Dick Tracy stuff. Man, I would have been hip on that. And, you know, it was like, you guys, it's too late. That product, I just don't see it. Maybe fitness applications or something, but I just don't see it going anywhere. But you mentioned a calculator. I imagine if you were in the calculator business in 1995, you're not doing real good if you stayed in that business. No, that, and that's what's, that's what's killed J Japan. I mean, you look at, you can think of a hundred high quality Japanese companies in the 1980s and 90s, everything from Panasonic, you know, all those brand names, Sony. Uh, you know, a few of them are hanging on, but but most of them are gone. Let me. I, I've got just kind of to drive this point home because I think this is important. I pulled up a, a an article on Th Thrillist uh, Tech, and it's 33 things your iPhone replaced. Here you go: guitar tuner, bubble level, camcorder, stud finder, scanner, alarm clock, uh, music players and CDs, your address book, the newspaper, the calculator, personal libraries, portable games calendars, cameras, maps and atlases, DVD players in collections, flashlights, not all flashlights, but I get what they're saying there, portable hard drives, uh, post-it notes, the compass, you mentioned that, a mobile hotspot, the television, eh, that might be pushing a little bit there, white noise machines, uh, cards and cash, yeah, I see where that is going, the mouse, uh, the speedometer, <laughs> GPS, right, tape recorders, Universal remote controls, I use that. I don't care about my remotes anymore. I don't look for them. Thermometers uh, and listening to weathermen. The radio, uh, to a large degree, yeah. Personal organizers and GPS navigation and all other phones, answering machines, and caller ID. Yeah, now, think, of, think about when you were an out uh, traveling sales guy. Oh, my God. Rand, Rand McNally. I bet you used to have a, a trunk load of maps and atlases and things like that. Yeah, I had uh, what they call map, 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 Mapsco, I think, was the thing with all the grids in it so I, yeah. every major city had a maps go uh, and even when like technology did start to catch up i had a pda and i had a phone right and i had a calculator for working up like takeoffs on the fly and stuff like that if i didn't want to pull my laptop out which by the way was like the size of a huge brick and you know pull up excel or something like that and you know all of those devices are now just gone when's the last time you you know pulled out your palm pilot and your your uh the little stylus And started, you know, pecking at it. It's, and that's, I, I know people think we're beating this up, 
but you know exactly why I went here. It's just to drive home how much has happened in 15 years. Yeah, and it's important that people really think about that because it's not just the items we're talking about, but it's the effect on the entire supply chain. I mean, think of things like, you know, maps going away and newspapers and telephone books. That wiped out entire billion-dollar industries. Billion do- That's Pr- my point, John. Print- printing oh. industries, okay, printing industries, forestry industries, converting industries, billions of dollars in each of those categories and, you know, tens of thousands of good-paying jobs. Now, the, the thing is, this has been, at this point, I do consider it so far to be, despite all the economic downturns, kind of golden age of opportunity anyway, if you take it, because all of those things we eliminated, like newspapers, for instance, gave a voice to people that would never have had a voice before. Podcasting taking over so much over radio. I mean, I can't tell you how many people, and I, you do have a podcast too, John, I guarantee you have people that email you and say, I listen to you in my car, right? Yes. So that means they're not listening to AM radio or FM radio. And you and I could not do what we do in 1995. There was no platform for it. So what people will say when you bring this up is like, okay, we'll see. This this is this is making our case for us. You just talked about all these billion dollar industries that went away, and yet the world didn't end, or you know, there's still you know more opportunity. So where does it start to cut over to where? Yeah, but now we're starting to have the other end of that sword cut into. How many jobs and how many uh, financial opportunities are there for people as small-time entrepreneurs or employees? Yeah, and so the difference where this comes in again, and it's that rate of acceptance and and how how it's going to get adapted this time around. And it's kind of the Moore's law thing, where you know things get electronics get twice as fast and cost half as half as much, twice the memory in an eighteen-month type period. So this this change starts happening exponentially. So when we were kids. You, know, you can remember back to the 1970s when the mills were closing down in Pennsylvania and the coal mines, and there were guys that were in their early 50s that had worked in the mill all their life. They suddenly get laid off. That stuff In those days, that stuff went to Japan. It wasn't that it got replaced by technology, but it went to Japan. And those guys that got laid off, some of them never got a job again. If they did, a lot of them, you know, it was the greeter at Walmart. It was a very not a good job. It was the and, 70s show, remember, Red? Right, he worked in an automotive plant, and he ended up working at Pricemart. Yep, that kind of thing. I mean, yeah. you, we we know guys that lived through that, and that same kind of thing has happened in a lot of industries. Again, if you're a printer, if you were a secretary, I mean, I don't even know what the politically correct term wouldn't be a secretary today, anyways. But in the 1960s, 1950s, there were millions of young women that were in the typing pool. You know, they were just car- oh, yeah. car- carbon paper. Nobody oh, yeah. nobody oh, knows oh, what oh, CC yeah. stands for on an email. Yeah. You know, the carbon paper. <laughs> yeah. but, I mean, so, but, so there were these millions of people that have lost their jobs over the years. But the difference, because this is going to happen so quickly, is it's not just going to be Western Pennsylvania or the Rust Belt or, you know, a demographic of secretaries. It's going to be – it's going to hit high-paying people probably, I think, more so than, than the um, – the blue collar guys are the the service workers it's going to hit the high paid professionals harder and it's going to be uh not limited by geography and not only even regionally in the US but this is going to hit India China every place yeah i think so because like i was just talking about this the other day like what china has relied on up till now is they have so many people and they have such a repressive regime that they can just take people and say you work in this factory for 70 cents a day And, and okay, because I don't want to die or go to like a gulag style prison or something like that. And even though this is, it's a little better than one of those. So I'll I'll do that. 
Well, you can only do that to a people for so long. So their labor rate costs are, have gone up significantly, and people still think that you know the average Chinese worker makes seventy cents a day. They don't wait, work, you know, make what the average blue collar American uh, worker makes, but it ain't the cost savings it used to be. No, and that's just it. When you when you have a uh, robot or you know what do you, you call it robot automation, I, I prefer to just look at its technology because it's not one thing. It's going to be it's the software, it's the computing power, it's the automation, it's the Internet of Things, it's the cloud. It's and that's why it's all changing so quickly because all those things are getting integrated. Um, you know, again, you think about the, the what you talked about with the, with the iPhone. I remember 19 years ago, 18 years ago, when one of my kids was born, I was doing some uh, marketing where we were doing production videos. And we had to go to a studio, you know, I don't know, $150,000, $200,000 worth of equipment just to create a little, you know, five-minute uh, uh, thing that you would see on, on YouTube today that you could do better quality and faster on your iPhone. Correct. You couldn't do that 19 years ago, 18. I mean, it was impossible to do. And... <laughs> Those, yeah. So all these things are accumulating together, and so it's not a matter of paying that guy in the Philippines five bucks a day or an hour or whatever it is. It's a matter of you don't need that anymore because you can put that machine in downtown Manhattan or wherever. You know, you, you bring that up. It's interesting because I remember I had a guy teaching me how to use Vegas when I was first learning, which is a editing program I use for my audio and video editing. And he showed me this one effect. It's just like you click on FX and there's all these effects, and I like did this, and he's like, I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. And this guy was old school. He goes, you don't understand. He goes, 20 years ago, I had to buy a $50,000 piece of equipment to do that one thing. Yep. That one thing. If I wanted that effect in a movie, it was $50,000. Now it's included in a bundle in software. And, and it, it is that type of acceleration and the, the acceptance. And I think this is the other thing people don't understand. For me to use automation as a business owner, the automation does not have to be less expensive than labor. It has to just to be more efficient than labor. And what I mean by that is if I have a piece of technology that will cost me 120% of what my labor costs, so it's 20% higher, right? I will, If that technology actually works to the same level or better than the labor, I will pay more for the technology because it never gets sick, it never complains, it never sues me, it never files a sexual harassment lawsuit, it doesn't need maternity leave, it doesn't quit and go work for my competitor. You know, you, you know what I'm saying? Like the biggest, and people don't get this, and I think this is probably why we both are kind of small, work alone for ourselves, entrepreneurs. As a, as a business owner, the biggest headache you'll ever have in your life is the people that work for you, even if they're good people, because we're human beings. Yeah, it's, employees are sixty percent of the cost of any product, and, and probably more than sixty percent of the headache. Yeah, well, they're ninety percent of the headache of, of getting the product to market. Yeah. So, and, and money and money goes where it's treated best. So that's why you'll see it move into these things, despite the fact, and we'll talk about this in a minute. You know, it's going to be opposition. There's going to be labor unions and government and institutions that don't want this, but it's going to happen one way or the other because the free markets. You know, eventually it wins out. Money travels where it's treated best, and ultimately deflation is good. People that are debt-based societies they hate deflation, but for for entrepreneurs and for humanity in general, deflation is good. Take a pack to something as simple as the Pony Express. I, I live out here in Utah, and I've, I've camped out along some of the Pony Express trails out here, and it's just. Just, you know, desolate and unbelievable. Those guys could deliver mail on, on horseback and things. But I did some research on that. It cost about 
a, a hundredth of an ounce of gold to deliver a letter on the Pony Express. That was like the best price. That was after the prices had come down. Okay. That's about, you know, 50, 60 bucks today to deliver a letter. You know, but see, we don't even use letters anymore. But if we did, what, <laughs> it's 50 cents for a stamp or something? Yeah. So deflation is good, and things are going to gravitate to that. Why would you send a letter, whether it's on a Pony Express or through FedEx, when you can just email it? And that's what we do today. You know, ten years from now, who knows what we'll do? We won't even use email to be something. Or, or, or I say email because I'm old school. It's probably nobody emails anymore. Everybody probably texts or does Instagram or something. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and it, Amazon now has this thing they're trialing where you order something and a drone drops it off at your front door. Right. And people yeah. say, well, that's a novelty. It, okay, you know what? It is a novelty for now. It is a novelty for now. But it's not completely a novelty. And, and I can see that type of technology, you know, first will be something rich people use, just like cell phones were. Just like cell phones were, right? You remember the first cell phones. I'm not even making fun of the fact that they were bricks, just the expense. And they were such a status symbol. People forget this. In the 80s, you could buy for 20 bucks a plastic fake cell phone. So you looked like you had a cell phone. And people bought them. It was like the guy that did that made a ton of money on them. And people were driving around in like New York City and, and what have you with these big fake brick cell phones pretending they had a cell phone because it was such a status symbol. Now oh, yeah. teenage girls have cell phones that are, you know, supercomputers. Sure, yeah. I mean, in the early 1990s is when I got my first business cell phone, and it was still hardwired to my car. You couldn't, you couldn't take it out of the car. Yeah. It was a car phone. It wasn't a cell phone. It was a car phone. They called a car phone in those days. Um, yeah, so, yeah, there was, yeah, that's exactly what it was called, a car phone. So these, these things are changing, and again, I, I, they are going to be bad for a lot of people, and, and even focusing on that, I think it's going to hit – You know, you hear a lot about, oh, it's going to hit the guys at McDonald's and things like that, and that's true. Um, oh, hey, you know, I want to digress here a second. You just mentioned Amazon. I, I read this week, you know, Amazon has patented the landing pad for, for those drones, home delivery. So basically what they've – Talk about old school things, Apple going back and reinvent, reinventing the watch. Amazon is reinventing the mailbox, and they've patented that landing system where the drone delivers basically your product to a mailbox at your house. So it's going to happen. You know, it sounds crazy now. That's going to happen. And all that, all that innovation, though, does spur other things. I mean, that's why we're using less oil, less petroleum products. You know, cars get better mileage. People are not driving as – I don't – you and I don't go to work. We, we telecommute from our homes. Yeah. That brings down the price of gasoline. That, that uh, takes us away from things like peak oil because we don't need as much of it because we don't use as much. In the, 19, in the 1970s, Americans were spending 8% of their income on energy. Today, they're spending about 5%. So again, these are these are good things, but they can disrupt disrupt individuals' careers. And I think it's not going to be so much the the hamburger flippers and McDonald's that are going to get replaced, although they will. It's really going to be again money money goes where it's treated best, and so it's going to be the high paid people. Right now, doctors, anesthesiologists, um, it's uh, making small little inroads, but about ten years, Johnson and Johnson. Uh, invented a machine that can basically replace an anesthesiologist. It couldn't get implemented because, you know, AMA opposed it, and there were all kind of concerns about whether it was safe or not. But last year, um, it, it was authorized to be used on colonoscopies, and it's a difference of, you know, hundreds of dollars versus thousands of dollars. Yeah. And and, and the patient doesn't see a difference. It's it's a machine that knocks you out and brings you back up when the, when the procedure's over, just like an anesthesiologist would. So... 
you know, if you're a anesthesiologist making four hundred thousand dollars, that it could be a concern, right? It's not going to happen tomorrow, but those things are, are taking place, and it's uh, same thing. X-ray, you know, radiologists, there are programs out there to read x-rays where you, you know, decision support systems you take the human element out of it you think a lasik eye surgery lasik eye surgery is basically just robotically enhanced eye surgery and you know the, the i'm sure when that first came about and this is the good news bad news thing that probably put a lot of either eye surgeons out of business maybe or maybe it put a lot of uh ophthalmologists out of business you sure. know because of the glasses but, but what has it done it's helped people's vision well you can go get your eyes done LASIK eye surgery for, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars nowadays. It used to be tens of thousands of dollars. So people are seeing better, and and uh, the doctors that specialize in that field are making a lot of money. But if you're a doctor that maybe used to sell reading glasses, you know, not so much. Well, I mean, okay, eyeglasses. Before we actually go into some segments, I want to back up to Amazon one more time because I'm not sure if you've seen this new technology they have. And this is another example of people don't get it. They don't get what's really coming next. Amazon has a new thing called Dash. I just noticed it on their website uh, a couple days ago. You get a little button thingy. It looks like a little, like look like a giant pill. It's kind of shaped like a capsule, but it's you know a couple inches long, and it'll say Tide on it or whatever. And it's got a button. It's a Bluetooth enabled and Wi-Fi enabled device. And if you have the Tide one, for instance, it's got a magnet. You stick it on your your washing machine. So mom's doing the laundry, looks down, the tide's almost empty, he looks over to the tide button, pushes the tide button. Two days later, whatever her order is specified for for tide shows up at her front door with Amazon Prime. Yes, but and what we're, t- we're going to talk about today is going to take that to the next step yes. where no one will push that button. And incidentally, you're, you're a sexist because you said a woman. Jack, yeah. when you're in there doing the laundry and you push that button <laughs> – I make my own detergent, though, man. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Renaissance man. I make my own detergent. I know. I'm joking. Yeah, so, like, no. here's my point, though. So, like, I put that up. People are like, why would people pay $4.99 a piece for these? And you have to have one for everything. And it's like, okay, this is what I don't think people understand, even though I teach people to do this in their own small businesses. Smart companies don't just train their employees. They train their customers to do business the way the company wants to do business. This is something that a kid can walk in to his parents' place that are not ready for all this technology yet, set up four or five of them, make their lives easier, and once they do it, they're not scared of it anymore. Now it works. Yes. By the way, yeah. make sure the baby can't reach it because I <laughs> – and there's got to be some kind of flow control or something on those. But So eventually what you're going to have is something that looks like you know an, an Amazon tablet or an iPhone-like device, that, and they're going to be cheap enough. You'll have one in your pantry, one in your, you know, on your refrigerator, one in the laundry room, and all the consumables. There'll be, you know, these, like just like a, a Windows Seven screen, right? And you just, or a, a Windows Eight screen, or whatever it is. You just push the icon, and that thing shows up. And you're right; they want to get it to where you don't even push the button. You don't push the button. Those sensors will cost a penny, and it'll be built in. And when it's empty, it'll just reorder. It'll well, restock. This, where this came from is, see, that was when I was in networking back in like 2001 and all. They wanted to do that with like smart refrigerators and stuff by then. The refrigerator would just know you're out of milk and send you milk. Well, the infrastructure to get that type of consumable shipped quickly wasn't in place yet. People were really leery of it, right? Because it sounds like the government knows how much milk I have. But we've been so softened up to those concerns. And now it's okay. You install what you want. And you're right. They're going to be a penny a piece for sensors. And as soon as people start doing it themselves, well, then GE can come out with a refrigerator and say, it's all done for you. Right. And, I mean, that's 
And people don't get this. I mean, I was explaining back in 2001 when people were not getting this evolution in technology that all the TVs that were being sold in Japan at the time had an RJ45 jack in them, and we didn't because they were ahead of the curve on that, and that was leading toward network televisions. And, of course, we all know wires went the way of the puppet, and we have wireless now. But how many people have some sort of wireless networking capability on their TV today? And it's most people that are under 50. Right. Yes. If over 50, you probably I, I don't have time to learn, but most people under 50 probably have smart televisions today. Yep. And, and Japan is a key place for people interested in trends. Japan has been and always has will be or for this foreseeable future will be the bellwether for technology. Keep your eye on Japan, what they're doing with automation. Uh, it's also a, uh, they're forced to go there because of high labor costs and bad demographics. Uh, but even, you know, probably it's been at least a decade, if not longer. Japan has been using their their phones to pay for things uh, yeah. you know swiping their phones and, st- and it went it literally went to their phone to their to their phone bill so at the end of the month you got your phone your mobile phone bill and you you know you bought a candy bar at Walmart or whatever and it was right on your phone bill hmm. <laughs> so what I mean let's look at some other industries what about transportation uh, so you know we hear a lot about um, driverless cars autonomous cars And again, since I was a kid in the Jensen's, I've been hearing about driving automobile, you know, about flying automobiles. I haven't seen those yet, right? I can't keep waiting to get an automobile that's going to fly me around. But I do think that we are getting to the point where these autonomous vehicles um, are just around the corner because you can go out and buy, you know, 2015, 2016 model car now that pretty much it'll, it'll park itself. It'll do a, you know, parallel parking for itself. It'll have emergency stop if you get in a collision. So we're not that far away from from autonomous cars and the impact that'll have on all of logistics. I mean, everything from, you know, trucking to taxi cabs to uh, it's just the way we, we commute ourselves. I think that's going to be a big thing. Uh, so look at all the people that potentially could displace as well as, you know, there are people saying, well, why do you even need a car? And it's not going to go the route of big governments, I don't believe, where we're going to have, you know, mass transit rail and bus systems like, like the big urban centers always want to promote. Because why do you need a railroad taking you to a limited number of places when you can have all these autonomous pods out there that will just operate when, when they're needed? Uh, you can, you know, just like using Uber now, you can, I can plug in Uber and get a, get a, a taxi ride anywhere. Why does that have to be a person driving the car? It can be a pod that just comes and picks me up, takes me wherever I want to go. Uh, that's again sounds sounds far fetched, sounds out there, but I and it's not again it's not going to happen next week. But this is things that gradually down the road are happening. And if you don't think that's important, or you don't think it's likely to happen, just look at what uh, the impact Uber is having on the taxi industry right now. I mean, it's that's huge, huge. And that's that's just scratching the tip of the iceberg. Well, and people, that's that's just an app. You know, that's people just naturally a, that's resist that because they're like, "Well, I love my car and I want my car and all." I, I get it, but I'll put it to you this way though: since I started working at home, I don't drive very much. I drive when I have to. So, like one of the primary reasons people even own a car today is so they can get to work. So all all you have to do is increase the number of telecommuters, and you you reduce the amount of vehicles on the road. And this starts leading to where the, the it starts to hurt in the pocketbook, and it's not just the employee without a job anymore, right? So in your notes you have for this outline today, you said, like, the people with the most to lose are going to be the people in power, government, and even some of the big corporations. 
So how do you think they're going to react to all this? Because you know when, when you and I don't drive our car, we don't buy gas. And when we don't buy gas, we don't pay tax on it. And, and, and they tell us they want us to carpool and all, but that's all bull. Right? That's all complete bull because it's like the electric company saying, we really think you should use less electricity. Here's your bill this month. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, here in Utah, you know, we, uh, we have lower gas prices because oil is at $31 a barrel. But uh, what did we do? First of the year, you know, we increased the excise tax on gasoline. When so, you could, when people wouldn't complain that much because it still looked like the gas went down. Yep, and it won't go away when the price goes back up. Of course it won't. <laughs> yeah, like so the airline tickets, right? You remember airline with the baggage fees and all the stuff they jacked it that used to be free on the airlines? And, and the, the airline executives came out like they were crying, and they're like, it, it, American Airlines just wasn't meant to run on $4.50 fuel. Well, uh, why do we still have all this crap then if that's why you did it? Because once you can make money, you don't want to let go. That's right. And that's why there will be roadblocks along the way. So, you know, this is going to affect, I think, Across the board, labor workers as well as blue collar, you know, blue collar, white collar workers, professionals, mid level managers. I um, mean, already look at the if you're if you're in corporate America and you're trying to get from, uh, you know, the working at uh, a low level up to the CEO's level, you, you got a long way to go because all those middle management jobs that used to be in between, they're not there anymore. They're going to go away, away even more, and that's exactly why. Even though our GDP, and this is kind of where we go back, where I talked about the beginning of GDP growth, GDP has grown less than two percent for the past 16 years. Corporate profits have expanded in in the mid to double digit range because they've been able to get rid of employees. So they're being able to, they're not growing their top line sales, but they're able to grow their bottom line profits because they've taken that 60% of labor out of things. Mid-level managers have been replaced by things like, you know, Oracle software, SAP, all that kind of enterprise stuff. You don't need those middle managers anymore. You don't need the attorneys and the architects and all those people that you used to need because you can either do it with a decision support system or with some type of a, a database that helps You know, a smaller amount of people do the work of, of thousands of people, just like the word processor and then eventually the you know personal computer did away with all the secretaries. You don't you don't need them anymore at, at, at typewriters. Hmm. And I, I think that we're going to see more and more attempts to kind of rein this in and get control on it. But I also think it's like the genie's out of the lamp, if that makes sense. Yeah. That, and that's that's going to be the problem. Like I said, money goes where it's treated best. And so even though there's going to be the government's going to fight it, institutions are going to fight this, big corporations are going to fight it, others will adopt it. And when they do, they will make better profits. And when, you know, when when Toyota is the company and is making all these little pods out there because they're not afraid of cannibalizing their personal car business and they start making all the money, then Honda. Yeah. And, General Motors and other people will jump in, but it'll be too late. And where you have, you know, 30 car companies today or whatever the number is, 15, you're going to have two or three 30 years from now when they're just making pods because you're not going to have, you're not going to have the diversity of things that you have in that particular. If, if consumers stop buying cars, you're not going to have as many consumer choices in cars because if they're bought by corporations, they're going to whittle that down to the most efficient and the, you know, they'll take more of the emotional factor out of it. So that's going to create less jobs for certain people. But again, whoever adapts that is going to win. Um, and, and same things with, with the governments. They're going to try and push back on this as much as they can. They're going to try and tax it, just like they're doing with Uber. They're trying to fight back on Uber and say that it, you know, they're not licensed to operate in certain cities because they violate the taxi cab medallion process and all that. But, but in the end, 
technology wins and well, it, 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 that's like a perfect example of no matter how hard the government tries, they just can't really stop it. Because in the end, Uber is, you give me a ride. I don't even pay you, right? It, it, it all happens behind the scenes. You show up, I get in your car, we go somewhere, you let me off. I, you can try to fight that, but the more people that use it, the more impossible it becomes to fight. I said in my intro part of the show today that governing really is at the consent of the governed, and people don't really understand that. They think that means that our consent is our electing people. Well, since our vote hasn't mattered for a long time, that's not really what it means. What it means is what we let them get away with. And there's a point where people just say, you know what, we, we like this and you, you can't interfere and we're going to use it no matter what you do and you can launch a war on it, drugs, and you still can't win. Right. Yeah, and, and we see China doing this all the time with the internet, right? They try and suppress the internet. Um, our, our government does it too, but I mean, it's more blatant in China. It doesn't work. People get around it. Technology finds another way to, 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 to do that. Um, at the same time, though, government's going to lose because they're also going to see this as an excellent way for them to grab power. And so I think they may think, well, on the one hand, I'll lose, I'll lose control here, like the media. The, you know, the government and the media have had an incestuous relationship for, well, I don't know, 100, 100 years, 50 years, and forever, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that is breaking down, and they're losing that battle. The media... Mainstream media is going away, uh, but the government's, you know, trying to make clamp down other places with surveillance, NSA centers, you know, recording all the phone conversations we make, things like that. I mean, so they they will use the technology because they think they're going to give up one thing, they're going to adopt it somewhere else. But I think ultimately, for the individual, we'll gain enough freedom where we can we can uh, we can at least fight back. Gotcha. And, and you, know, you look at things like cryptocurrency is a perfect example. Yeah, I, I'm a I'm a I'm not, I mean, I'll say, I'm not a big investor in Bitcoin yet, but I am a big believer in cryptocurrency and it looks like Bitcoin has the model down. They look like the best. You know, I was watching over the last two years to see how that evolved and Bitcoin doesn't look like it's going to get replaced just yet, although it could. Um, but I mean, it really seems to have a solid, and it's not Bitcoin. As you know, it's, it's the block technology. Yeah. But they seem to have the best way to control the existing block technology. And so rather than them getting replaced, I think they're just going to get built upon. And so I, and I'm a big believer in Bitcoin. And again, that's going to be great for individuals. But at the same time, the government is going to see how they can use it and big and big business. You know, how can how can the New York Stock Exchange use it? How can Visa use it? How can the IRS use it? Well, yeah, I mean, if, if the government could get people into a cashless society on a Bitcoin like technology, it's a dream for them. They can literally track every single uh, transaction perfectly and completely and, and tax it. Uh, they could move to a model where they tax the transactions like a sales tax and abs absolutely eliminate tax fraud. So the government loves it, but what the government doesn't understand is like one of the reasons people use it is the technology can be the exact opposite. It can be virtually impossible to determine who happened where and what. It can be 100% visible or completely unintelligible and people like every bitcoin transaction is you know public it can be no there's a thing called zero coin for instance it works kind of like multiplexing does in telecommunications where i send my bitcoin to you john and it breaks it up into a million little pieces that all take their own thing and get reassembled on the other end and it, if you do that it's virtually impossible to know who sent what to whom or even how much was sent so it all depends on how we use the technology and so the end of the question becomes will Will private people 
move faster with the technology or will government move faster with the technology? And if you look at it that way, it's almost funny. Yeah, private people are going to win out, definitely. I, I, again, I, I, I may have too much faith in the free market, but I, I, I use his, history as my – history. Look at, look at, what yeah, look at history. Done and look what people have done. Yep, I, I, and even just, again, simple things. We're using Skype right now. I can remember in the ni- – I don't know when Skype came out, 19 – or 2007, maybe, 2005, when Skype first came out. Um, I can remember going to small – and this is when I was still in corporate America – and I would be working with some small little entrepreneurs, and these guys would be Skyping, you know, p- people from. They'd be in Kentucky, they'd be Skyping somebody in London, and at the same time, for free, basically. Yeah. At the same time, I'd go back to my corporate headquarters, and we couldn't figure out how to get our three hundred thousand dollar teleconferencing machine to work. And you know, it's like this. <laughs> why don't we just Why don't we just use Skype? Oh, you can't use Skype, you know, security reasons. So. The big, the big corporations and the big government will be the last ones to adopt this stuff. And by the time they do it, the entrepreneur will be five, ten years ahead of them. And so that's why I do, I do remain optimistic. But absolutely, things like there's a, there's a, a right two sides to every coin. There's a good side and a bad side, a, a, a light and a dark side to everything. And the government's going to try and power grab things like cryptocurrency where they can. They can see every transaction. They can know how much milk you have in your refrigerator, how much energy you're using for your air conditioner. That's going to be a bad part, but I think these other technologies are going to help us counteract some of that. And again, it gets back to the Soviet Union. You know, Soviet Union didn't fall because of any military force. No. Right? The people, the people stopped fearing them, and the people said, "I'm not putting up with this anymore." That's really the bottom line. That's why the Soviet Union fell. Like I said, it's the consent of the governed, and, and and the problem we have in America today is the govern the governed are very consenting, because their education is not education; it's a programming process. But let's talk about that sector too, right? So I when I look at sectors that are under threat of this evolution, education, and people Absolutely. think I'm way out in left field, and it's just because of my hatred of government schools and what have you. But I'm not just talking about government schools. I'm talking about government schools. I'm talking about private schools. I'm talking about nonprofit universities, for-profit universities, technical education. I'm talking about all of it, all the teachers being under massive threat because my grandson learns faster from ABC frickin' mouse than any kid does in kindergarten. That's a fact. Yep. Par- par- again, you know, money goes where it's treated best. Parents are going to educate their kids where they get the best education. Individuals are going to go to where they get the best education. Um, I'm even at this point, I'm shocked that universities charge as much as they can even now because there's virtually no the only value is as you've said on your show before. I mean, it's really just you're buying this the certificate. You know, you, you, it's a pay to play kind of thing. People people expect you to have the college degree or the high school diploma, but there's there's absolutely no logical or you know economic reason to do it in terms of the the education that you, you receive. You can receive a better education at a lower cost, not going through the traditional university model right now, or you know. Elementary school, pick, pick whatever, but, but they're they're held in place because of institutions and governments and unions and things like that, which hold power. But they're going to go away, absolutely. And, and it's not learning is not going to go away. And the business of making money, teaching people things, that won't go away. It's the institutions of higher learning that's what's going to go away. Just like political parties. I mean, look. And again, it's amazing to me that either the Democratic or the Republican Party have held up as long as they have. But right now, the the Republican Party's being destroyed by Donald Trump, who's not even really a Republican, right? He's a shoot in in my day in the 1970s. He had definitely been a 
he'd have been a Democrat, no doubt about it. Um, but he's he's showing how insignificant the media is, how insignificant the political parties are. Uh, and I think it's great. I think it's I think these things are they they've they've okay. You know, people talk about peak oil and they they're a lot of gloom and doom. And we're and we're talking about a lot of gloom and doom here today as well. Yeah. But but I, I I don't I have a different philosophy on peak oil and where that stuff's going. But you know what I want to see? I want to see peak government. <laughs> oh, I like that idea because I want to see what I want to see peak side of that peak, bell curve. Yeah, peak bureaucracy, right? Peak control, peak institutions. That's where we're headed. I really believe that these guys have have you know they play their cards a hundred years. And it's it's um, things things are going to turn in favor. I think of the entrepreneur. Well, I agree, and I think you know everybody's worried about the collapse of the, the 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 oil market or something like that. And when I look at what's left in the ground and what's available, and yes, it's very expensive to make you know tar sands into oil. But if that's what there is, then we will do it, and we can make things that are expensive less inspe- less expensive. We do that, and I'm I'm taking all the environmental concerns for now. And I'm, I'm putting them on the shelf, not because I don't have them, but because it doesn't matter. They're going to do it. And that's not what the peak oil people are saying. They're not saying we're going to stop using oil because it's bad. They're saying we're going to stop using oil because we're not going to be able to. And and I don't buy that. I think that you'll see, you know, on your notes, you call it the collapse of institutions, education, banking, medicine, police, military, uh, mass manufacturing, immigration, right? Those are what you have listed on your – I don't see oil there. You know what? And actually, I have it penned in. I'm glad you brought it up. I have it penned in here in my notes after I, I do that because we're at peak OPEC right now, right? That's uh. another thing. We're not peak oil. It's peak OPEC. In the 1970s, um, and you remember this. You were, again, you're about 10 years younger than me, but you definitely remember this. OPEC has had us uh, in the West, in the U.S. in particular, by, by the short hairs, right? Stranglehold for the last 40-plus years. And w- what replaced – why are they going away now? It's not because of the military. It's not because of any type of things that our government did because our government all along has been promoting and reinforcing and helping OPEC. You know, If it wasn't for us defending the Straits of Hormuth and defending the House of Saud, those guys would have fallen a long time ago anyways. But what's bringing about their demise? Horizontal drilling, right? And what's yeah. that? That's, that's automation. We have just automated and made it easier to explore and drill for oil. And what used to take – and we still are going to have deep see you know oil rigs and we're, we're still gonna that stuff's not going to go away but we're just enhancing it and these techniques you know particularly when you're looking at shale oil what would take you billions of dollars and decades to develop out in the ocean up in you know the north atlantic or something you can develop for millions of dollars and either months or years here in the u.s and right now i'm i'm one of the believers that we're not going to see a big spike in oil prices Unless there's you know big trouble in the Middle East or something like that, but if if things just go along the way they are, we have over 2,000 shale oil rigs that have shut down in the last 18 months, and so that oil, the, the pipe they can, is in they the can ground. Turn back on anytime they want, like a switch, yeah. yeah, like a valve. They're going to turn the valve. No, no investment needing taking place, nothing. So every time oil goes one cent above fifty dollars a barrel. Another rig's going to come online. So I think we're going to be sub 50 or, you know, certainly sub 60 for, it could be, could be decades. You know, and again, I, I, people don't believe me when I say these things. I try and put out charts to show the relationship. Go look at oil prices in 1980. They peaked 
by 86, they were cut in half, just like ours were cut in half last year. And then from 86 until about 2000, you had 10 to 15 years of stagnation where the, you know, oil companies didn't go out of business, but the price didn't go anywhere either. They stayed relatively flat for a decade or more. And again, it was still profitable. ExxonMobil, they made a lot of money, but that, that early turbulence, and you can remember the, the housing, the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s, uh, places like, you know, Houston, the real estate market collapsing. That, that to me, I think that might all yet to be, co- all yet to come in our current market because oil hasn't gone low enough. We haven't seen the bankruptcies, um, the defaults that we are likely to see if commodity prices stay at this level. And I don't see anything that's going to bring them up. Copper, you know, copper's at $2 a pound. Um, the, 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 the spike we saw in copper prices for the last 10 years was an anomaly. I think we're going back to pre-2005. Let's put that in perspective. So when I was a kid in the 1980s, John, there was all this scrap copper in these abandoned uh, mine shacks. Uh, it, the Reading Company just left in the 1930s, and it's been there since then. And it were these big frames, and they had copper coils in them. And you could go up there and, and take a big pair of like tin snips and cut one side and grab the other side with a pair of pliers and pull copper out of them. Because otherwise they weren't worth much because it was all this, uh, this, this stamped steel that held the whole frame together. And these things were just laying. I mean, these were piles. And I, when I was, when I was back up there in the 2000s, I went to where I was a kid and I did this to show my family where it was. And my pile that I'd pulled out was still laying there and, and the rest of them are still sitting there rusting. And I told friends about this when I, you know, this is an example of people not taking opportunities. When I got my first car, my friend said, you're lucky you have a car. And I said, Dude, I, I pulled this copper out of it. There's lots of them up there. Go do it. No one ever did. There's trees growing through the pile, you know. But I sold copper in the 1980s to the junkyard for 85 cents a pound. Mm-hmm. And what's it now, two bucks? Two bucks. Okay, it, it, what, it, what, it, what, it, cents it, a pound? It's only $2 now other than copper <laughs> in, in a store. You, yeah. You, you know what I mean? Like, so copper, if we inflation adjust that, probably costs less. Exactly. Right now, all commodities are less adjusted for inflation, including including gasoline. Um, you know, but where we're seeing the problem on the consumer end of pricing is you, you know, labor costs have taken out, but the labor that we have, we're paying so much more for health insurance, uh, regulations, all these kind of things have, that's, that's the burden. And so it's kind of one of these things where, it, where people say, oh, well, we need higher oil prices to stabilize the economy. Well, if oil prices go up and we, and we still have all these high regulatory costs and health, health insurance costs and things like that, it's really going to cripple the economy. The, I was very pessimistic until, um, I guess through, through 2013 when the market was doing really well, I was very pessimistic because I saw, just saw things getting too overpriced. And then when I saw, started seeing the drop in the oil and the rise of the U.S. dollar in, in early 2014, I started getting really optimistic because I, I knew that that would counterbalance the other problems. But, you know, the Affordable Care Act, that specifically and then just in general, things like health care, that, that cost is astronomical. And it's hidden. It's hidden. Yeah. It's buried. and People don't see it like your Social Security tax. But it's there and it's taken a big bite. And uh, that's, that's really what has dragged down the economy over the last 20 years. Yeah, I mean, that's hurting people bad. My, uh, my daughter-in-law just got her first really decent job. You know, she's making 16 bucks an hour. She's getting 40 hours a week. She gets some benefits. Sounds great. Well, you gotta buy your own insurance. And for, for, so it, it, it's better for them right now because my son's a bartender. They don't exactly have great benefits that all of them are on her insurance. 
and they were all happy about having a decent income. Half of her check, half of her monthly income goes to pay for health care. Half. Yep. And this is what I'm saying where they're going to, like, I think the next move there is the government will go to a single-payer system. And I think that all of the people, and I've been saying this, you know I've been saying this since 2010, before the act passed. I said this was the plan. They are ruining it. They are absolutely destroying it to where the the the, the, the biggest holdouts to say, I will not let this happen, will go, I give up. I can't afford it anymore. And I think that's their goal. But at the same time, I see that whole sector being another example of an industry collapse because people are going to say whether it's because it costs too much or because the quality of care sucks inside a government system, I'm going to find other ways to see to my health care needs. Exactly. Because exactly. there are better ways. I mean, when you – I recently stepped on a piece of wire that went up to my foot, and I went to have it checked out at a care now because, it, you know, it had – duck crap on it and it went up and I felt it hit the bone and all and I wanted to make sure you know do I need to take an antibiotic or something because a bone infection is bad news the doctor walked in backwards looked at it for a half a second and walked back out and gave us a bill for $300 so I, I want to believe that there's some technology that could have done a better job without a doctor than he did not because maybe he wasn't capable of but he's not going to do it anyway and you know, and, and again, this this is already it's taken place now. It's slowly getting acceptance. But I've I'm kind of off the grid when it comes to the healthcare system. I, you know, before the Affordable Care Act came along and made my health insurance so affordable, I was able to afford it myself. You know, as Correct. a small business guy. Yeah. My after Obamacare kicked in, my stuff. Uh, I went up over. Uh, I didn't get well over. I went from like five hundred dollars a month to seven fifty. Is that for you and your spouse? Or for, my, for my family. For, for my family. family yeah, yeah. For me, for me and my wife and two kids at the time. Yeah, we're um, paying twelve grand a year for me and Dorothy right now. Yeah, and and, and that was too. That was a high. That had a twelve thousand dollar deductible. Yeah, we that. do. Do we have sky high deductible? They don't cover anything unless nothing. Yeah, they, I mean, Dorothy had to go to the emergency room a year ago, and we ended up with a bill for like four thousand dollars. And I'm like, well, what does our insurance cover? And the answer was nothing. Right. Yeah. It, it'll get you. It'll get you. Uh, It'll get you drug and end. alcohol counseling, and it'll yeah. get you one free exam a year. It'll get you, you know, lactation services or something. But you'll yeah, get covered if you're bitten by an orca whale. My my wife, you'll love this. My wife, who's in her fifties, has has maternity coverage because we have to have women have been through menopause and can't possibly have a child have to have maternity coverage because it's only fair. You see, I mean, so when you have something going this wrong. There has to be a revolution against it, and since I don't see that revolution happening in the the Senate or the House or the the gov you know the, the Capitol, even at the state level, really, that it has to happen as a an an anarcho style revolution. And I don't say that to push my own anarchist agenda. I do that all the time anyway. What I mean is, you actually end up with people committing moderate acts and non damaging acts of civil disobedience just because they're done. They're just done. And, and if you look at major shifts, I, I, you know, I use, you know, the civil rights, you know, Rosa Parks didn't go to a town hall meeting right. and say, I, I would like, please, your permission to, to have my rights. She made a statement by just doing it. And there's more and more people that are starting to do that. We're seeing it with, you know, urban agriculture. We're seeing it with education. We're seeing parents say, yeah, I know you have certain rules for the way that home education is supposed to happen. I'm not even following those, and you're not going to do anything about it. And you do see the state lash out and make examples out of people. But 
they only do that when they have a person that they can target and make an example out of. When there's thousands, medical marijuana is another example, and moving to recreational. You get to a point where people just start going, you know what, I don't smoke dope, but I know like five guys that are pretty good people that don't bother anybody that smoke dope. The only thing they want when they're smoking dope is a Twinkie in a video game. I don't understand why they would go to, to jail for that. Or I did a talk one time on that issue, and, and, and it was in a pretty conservative environment. And I said, everybody in here that's willing to admit it, that ever once in your life smoked marijuana, put your hand up. And it was about eight out of ten people. Because like once one person did it, people look around and squirm, and you see all these hands go up. I said, okay, everybody that ever went to jail for it, put your hand down. And nobody's hand went down. Okay, so all of you did that. All of you didn't go to jail for it. I said, everybody with your hands still up. Everybody thinks you deserve to go to jail for when you did it. Put your hand down. Every hand stayed up. And I'm like, that's why this is happening, guys. Because people are realizing that. Like, it doesn't make sense to lot. Whether you think the behavior is acceptable or not. And that's just the same thing beginning to play out. And things like marijuana go first because they're illegal and they have this stigma attached to them. But what that does is when, when that victory starts to occur, and it's just rolling now, people start looking at it and going, well, if that applies to marijuana, why doesn't it apply to my choice of who I have as a doctor? Absolutely. Right? right. It's, and it seems preposterous that if government shouldn't be able to interfere with what we've been told is an illicit drug, then maybe these other things that are pretty harmless, they shouldn't be able to interfere with either or, you know, control our children in our school systems under the auspice of normalcy. Because what I see in our schools now is the children who are obedient are abused by the school and the children who are disobedient are abusing the staff. Because the staff really has no power, and the kids are beginning to figure that out. So that just seems like a cascade of failure right there. Yep, and, and technology is going to enhance all this. And, and uh, where I did on the meta, even today, example of what's going on right now in my life, uh, and I'm actually, I haven't talked about this on my podcast at all because uh, I've been waiting to see how it works out because I don't want people to jump in and do something that's stupid. I've kind of put myself up as a guinea pig, but uh, I'll, I'll announce it here, and then I'll, I'll follow up with people later on if they listen to my podcast. But I've unplugged from the uh, traditional insurance system i went with one of these health shares these faith-based mm-hmm. health health share things so i'm paying like less than 500 a month for my family uh, my deductible went from twelve thousand dollars a year down to fifteen hundred dollars a year i get to and where i had lost the right to pick my doctor because i had to go through some hmo before now i can basically use it it's, it's, it's a, basically a cash system you pay it with cash you get reimbursed through the health health share Hmm. I don't know how it's all going to work out. I don't know if it's a scam. You know, I, I haven't yeah. had to have any surgery to find out if it's really real or not. The, but the Free I, Talk I, Live guys recommend one of those, and I've looked at it. So my concern is, like, I, I'm willing to try that. But how does that fit in with the Obamacare mandate? Because well, right I, now, because yeah, it's, I, faith, well, cause it's faith-based right now, yeah. and, and again, until they change the law. But right now, the way they're getting around that, it's faith-based. It's so, so that's the deal. Oh. In, the, in the old days, again, go, go back to the 50s, yeah. there, there used to be the bricklayers' union, and you paid your dues to the union, and you got covered with health insurance through the bricklayers' union, right? Yeah. Um, and, it, and it wasn't even insurance. They just pooled all their money together. It was a mutual society that helped people that got unemployed or got hurt. And, and that's the way it worked. And you know, then we got insurance companies and government paying for everything, and that stuff went away. 
and that's sort of what this has come back to. The only way they're getting in under the radar is because they're saying we're doing this under religious affiliation. Yeah, and that's and, really a poison pill to go after you. After they set it up to promise they wouldn't mess with faith based, then to turn around and say, "Well, we didn't mean it." it it's it, like people don't like this thing as it is. They're holding it together by a thread right now, and if they start doing something like that, that's really going to create a lot of bad voodoo on 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 pushback. Because I mean, when I look at it, I go. At this point, they do have me because as expensive as my insurance is, I can't go uncovered, you know. And so this would be an option, but the penalty is is extreme at this point, and it's going to get worse every year. Right. And and here's the way I went with this faith faith based thing. I thought, okay, even if it's here's so here's the deal. If I'm in the system now, I lose, you know, six seven grand a year, in, or no more than I'm losing uh, eight grand a year at least in premiums. Yeah. And then I'm not covered for anything unless it exceeds 12 grand. Okay. So I'm out 20 grand one way or the other. And like guys like me and you, we have assets. So it's not like I can just, you know, go to the emergency room and not pay. Other people can do that. Well, if I go, I got assets. They're going to come after me. So it's a matter of how do I protect at least that first 20 grand of, of coverage by going through this faith based system? Um, you know, if one of the other screw up rules they put in with the Obamacare thing is you can't be dropped from, from medical coverage and you have to be accepted if there's a life changing event in your life. Uh, and I'm just, I'm not offering anybody any recommendations here. I'm just telling you how I thought through this process for myself, how I came to this conclusion. So right now I'm with the faith, faith based thing. I'm healthy. It doesn't matter. If I get sick and the faith based one doesn't work out, well, I can't be denied coverage. An insurance company has to accept me whether I have cancer or not, and it's definitely going to be a life-changing event if I have to fire myself to make, you know, to make that a life a life-changing event to get back on the rules of, of regular traditional insurance. You know, because so I you know if I have to, I'll go back and pay the eight hundred dollars a month or whatever it is. But yeah. but uh, I don't know. Right now, I think this is a way to kind of get around the system. I think other people are going to do these kind of things. And again, if enough people do it, it'll either break the system or maybe they'll make it illegal to do it this way. The other part is, again, with the, with the automation and the technology we're talking about, I'm, I'm going to be 55. I haven't had my colonoscopy yet. I've been told I'm supposed to have one of those things. I've, I've pushed it off. You know, I'm not going to go down and pay whatever it is for a colonoscopy, you know, five grand, two grand, whatever they cost. And, you know, we talked about how the anesthesiologists are being replaced in colonoscopies now. Well, they've got systems out now that are highly, uh, highly rated, very, very functional where, uh, you know, when you're having a bowel movement, you just have to do a little wipe here, put that thing in the mail and send it off. And that replaces the need for a colonoscopy. It costs less than a hundred bucks. Yeah. So that's that's where medicine is going. The things like Fitbit that monitor monitor your heart rate and they'll be able to check your your blood sugar level. That stuff is all going to replace all this and it's going to get back to do I want to go see a doctor that doesn't even have look at me or do I want these technological things that'll help me keep track of my own health and then when I do need a doctor, I'm going to go to the guy that maybe he's on Skype in, you know, seven states away from me, but he'll Skype with me 24/7 and he'll spend time with me and he'll only charge me 100 bucks. Well, let's, you know, that's let's look, at, look, look at let's look at that cuz okay, one of the main reasons people go to the doctor because they have an issue and they want to make sure what? That it's nothing serious. They, it, it, there's a lot of visits to the doctor right now that are to rule out this being a cancer or something like that. So if you give a patient a diagnostic tool to do that, because everybody that self-diagnoses them on the Internet right now ends up 
I have cancer. But if you actually give a functional self-diagnostic service or you give a consultative service capability to people to rule out, so that right there just takes a huge burden off the healthcare system right away with people going to doctor's offices when people that are actually sick need to be there. That That's just one example of that. And then I think the other thing is I do think consumers are starting to wake up to the fact that they are being looked at by the pharmaceutical industry as a cash cow. And the means by which they end up as a cow is through their doctors. That, that, that is, in fact, the case that there are more Americans on drugs today because of their doctors than because of street dealers. Yes. And, and so there has to be blowback to that. There has to be a point where people start saying, do I really need to be on all this shit? And the blowback is going to come from the doctors, too, because they're going to finally wake up and say, I'm prescribing my own career away. I know people are coming to me for prescriptions, but I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm losing the, the human touch. And if I just if I just charged, you know, a concierge fee of whatever, a thousand, two thousand dollars a family and made house calls via Skype, I could spend 30 minutes, an hour with people. I could still be making four hundred thousand dollars. But instead of tell them to go away and take an antidepressant, I could really be helping them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, so, I mean, you start to look at the whole cascade, right? So imagine this. What hit, think about this, what hit is it to the pharmaceutical industry alone if we take half of the students out of public education? You know where that goes, right? Oh, yeah, everybody's, no one's going to be using Ritalin. Right? Because the, the, because where do these kids end up on these drugs now? And every time I say this, I get some mother freaking out at me about how we tried everything and you're just saying about, listen, I'm sure there's a small handful of kids that certain types of these drugs are useful for and possibly necessary. But it sure as hell ain't the millions of these kids on this dope. No. And when I was a kid, I would have been diagnosed with ADD and it would have squelched Everything that's made me successful. Well, it, because ADD today is, well, the kid won't sit down for eight hours a day and do what he's told. If you've been a parent, you know that that's not how kids work. Right. Children do not work this way. I just read an article recently that this school down in, I think it was Houston, decided to go from one recess to four 15-minute resources a day. And the behavior problems went down and the grades went up. And the, the teachers were scared shitless of this, John. Before they did it, they were concerned and worried and nervous. And how would the kid? You just look at that and go, you know what? Okay, this shows me a whole bunch of things. One, we're right; these kids need more activity. Two, our teachers do not understand how children's minds work. So, how are you going to have an educator that's supposed to educate a child when she doesn't understand the mind of a child? Because the most basic, you know, person that's parented kids says, "Well, of course that would work. Of course that would work." And a teacher's nervous about it, worried about it, concerned about it. And so there's all this incentive to yank kids out of school. I think let's kind of move into some of the things that will work for people and make this possible, who the winners will be. But I think, for instance, I see all kinds of opportunities for parents to form cooperatives for education. to So the cooperative then employs people who are educational assistants, not necessarily teachers. Where this all starts to go awry is the government starts saying, well, you're doing a daycare facility. Now you, you, know, you need licensing and stuff like that. But don't you think we get to a point where people just start doing that and saying, you know what, go away or go under the umbrella of faith? I, I'm a deist. That's a faith. It's a faith. It's a faith. It's a religion. Your faith can be the you, – you don't – you believe in the failure of government, right? That's your faith. I was saying I mean, is a faith. 
Yeah. So a, you know, here's the whole thing. It's a non-existence of God. It's a faith. It's a faith that because you can't see something, it's not there. That's the yeah, and if it is. People may need to may need to while we can at least rely on the, the First Amendment and and fall back on faith to, to make some of these things happen. But the mechanisms are in place. The the opportunities are there now. And we'll go back to you you just using a simple example of Uber. Uber is nothing more than an app and a country and a company that created an organization a organization of drivers to make that app work out. And it's really just a proximity app. What it does is it takes where you are on your cell phone, you know, the GPS, your cell phone knows where you're at, and you can figure out where the closest driver is that takes you where you want to go. And you can pick out whether you want to go in a limousine or whether you want to go in a Prius. All those kind of things are available to you, basically free of charge until you actually engage them to take you somewhere. Apply that same model to homeschooling, okay? Now it allows people, you know, the, your neighbor three houses down the street, down the road that you didn't even know, they want to homeschool. So now it, it not only links those kind of organizations up, but it takes it to the next level of resource base. Let's say you're a teacher that has been, you know, either quit because you hated the system or you've been fired because these uh, public schools are falling apart. Well, you're now just like an Uber cab driver. You put on there your credentials just like you do on Uber. There's a picture of the driver. Yeah. tells you what kind of car he drives, what his record is. Well, now you're a math teacher. You specialize in teaching, th you know, third graders how to do you know, whatever, algebra or something, whatever third graders do. It's on Uber, and you're, it's proximity. I know that you're five miles away, or I know that you'll be in my town the first Wednesday of every second month or whatever. All that can be done now with these existing kind of apps, and that's what's going to tie people together. And you're going to be able to pick and choose just like you would your doctor or your teacher. It's all going to be choice, just like in the old days. If I could find a, a cab, I'd have to stand out in the road, wave for one, or go to a phone and call one. Now I can get on my cell phone pretty much anywhere in the U.S., and I can get an Uber guy to pick me up. Same thing is going to happen with education, you know, finding quality teachers and other organizations to help each other, and good quality doctors. If I, you know, I do my little through-the-mail colonoscopy thing and it comes back uh, doesn't look so good, I'm going to be able to go on this Uber app and I'm going to be able to find a doctor. And it doesn't, in that case, it doesn't even have to be in my area. He can be in Oklahoma or something. He can consult with me over Skype. All the middlemen in between us are taken out, and I'm going to get the quality care that I want. I, I believe that's a – I think that's where things are headed. Well, I think there's like – so there's technology that enables some of that stuff that I don't think people realize. So like – um, you know, the, the guys, the guy from Dr. Dr. Stephen Lewis from Doctors Nutrition that I've had on the air a couple of times. The way he works, he's a chiropractor, but he uses lab work. And you go pay cash for your lab work. And the, the lab work that he tells you to go to like LabCorp or somewhere and get costs you about 300 bucks. If you went to a hospital and they ordered the same lab work, it would be $3,000. Sure. So that enables a doctor to say, all I really need is a reading on this, this, and this. Go down and, and you go down to LabCorp. You pay him 75 bucks and they send it to the doctor. He goes over your lap with you over Skype. Done. Yep. That's right? what's good. That, and that, that, might, that's a perfect you know, model. This is really concerning me. You need to go actually see a doctor. But eight out of 10 times, it's, you know what? You need to lay off of this a little bit or you need to maybe supplement that or we could do a little bit of this or, or whatever. It, it, you know, it's not because most of this medicine practice today is defensive medicine. They're, they they don't want to get sued for not finding something, but on the other side the patient wants to know is there something really wrong? And, and I think another thing we're going to see is this whole I, I talked about this this week, we're going to stop keeping people alive for five extra years of misery. 
right. and people are going to start taking it back in because I, you know, I know you come from the same area I do. And what I was talking about this week was I remember being a little kid. I'm sure you do too. And having older people around me, people that were like late eighties, early nineties would say things like, Oh, I'm going to die soon. I'm going to go home. And they were okay with it. And as a kid, you're like, Oh my God, when? And you're, they're like, I don't know, a few years. And if you're 90, it's a, it's a reasonable answer, right? I mean, we have to stop denying that we're mortal. And people died in peace at home. And now they die to the wars of machines and everybody thinks they're helping them. And it's, it's, it's actually, I think, really abusive. But yet, I don't think that we're really doing it against people's wills. I think we've actually convinced people that they need to hang on. Where, and I'm sure you've seen instances too where a family member is hanging on because someone's coming. Someone's going to come say goodbye. And once that person comes and says goodbye, almost in seconds, they let go. And so people are hanging on because they feel like they have to. And we know people can do that. And I think so that's another whole industry. There's that, that's because, and people don't get that. Like that's become billions of dollars just keeping people alive that should be let go. And I'm not talking about euthanasia. I'm, I'm talking about let's stop using heroic me measures to extend the life of an unconscious person that doesn't want to be here anymore. Yes, and that and that all comes about because of the pharmaceutical companies and the medical industry and the third payer insurance thing. You know, it gets back to if you were making the decisions for yourself and paying for them out of your own pocket, you'd make different choices. And yeah. and, and again, I think this technology has taken us there. For, for the doctors in the audience that are panicking, right? Think about this. I know a lot of primary care physicians that hate their job. They're seeing. 50, 60 people a day. They're wrapped up in all the insurance paperwork. They're, they're where they used to maybe be a private practice. They've been bought out now by the big insurance company or network hospital networks. If and I, I did the math in my head here, so it may not be exactly right, but I would. They run the numbers. I'm pretty sure you could see 10 patients a day and charge them $100 each, and you would make a hundred. You would make $200,000 a year top line revenue. You could do all that on a, a Skype business model with some type of a Uber scheduling, you know, app. Ten, ten people. So would you rather see 10 people a day either in person or on Skype and make 200 grand a year and take and, and basically do it out of your house like doctors used to? I used to know doctors and dentists that had their practice right in their house when I was a kid. Um, you're, we can go back to that model. We don't have to have these big corporate systems that, that eat up everybody's wages along the way because primary care physicians are not clearing 200 grand now. Yeah, and they're and they're and they're miserable. Yeah, I, I mean, I also think you get less accurate results in some cases than using like these monitoring devices that are available today. So most people don't like doctors' offices, right? And and I, I've never been able to prove this, but I bet if a massive study was done, it would prove out. I believe that the average blood pressure reading in a doctor's office is higher than the person actually has on a regular basis. Because they're anxious, they don't want to be there, they're angry, they just waited in a waiting room for 45 minutes, though they were told to show up 15 minutes early, and it's now 45 minutes past their appointment. They're pissed off, they've got some nurse rushing them through this. Yeah, their blood pressure is going to be higher. Th th that's just a basic thing. Where You can go to the store and buy an automated blood pressure cuff that replaces that nurse. You stick your arm, right. you push a button, it does everything by itself. There's no reason that can't be a Bluetooth-enabled device that my doctor's worried about my blood pressure on Skype. And he says, I want you to take your blood pressure when you wake up uh, in the middle of the day and before you go to sleep for the next week. And don't even worry about it. Just take it. And then, boom, there's all my readings. Because, And I'll tell you why that's safer. So my wife goes to a dentist and a, and a dentist, not a dentist, an eye doctor. And an eye doctor looks in her eyes and says, looking at 
your blood vessels in your eyes. You had a extremely high blood pressure event. I think you're a ticking time bomb. You need to go to your doctor and get a blood pressure medication. So I kind of walk her back in, but she had been in the medical industry her whole life, and you believe whatever the person in the white coat says. So she goes to the doctor. She's all nervous. Her blood pressure is a little high, but not that high. But the doctor wants to put her on, on blood pressure meds. So we go get one of these blood pressure cuffs, and I say, what I want you to do, and the, she said, the doctor said if it was her mother, she would do it. I'm like, that does not mean she's right. So I'm like, I want you to keep track of your blood pressure for three weeks and write it down and take those readings back to your doctor. So she takes them back to the doctor, and the same doctor that three weeks ago was like, you really need to be on, goes, yeah, you don't need blood pressure medication. Now, why my wife's eyes had these blood vessels that had, had sustained damage. My wife formerly had a condition called trigeminal neuralgia and had been through pain events that rival anything that anybody's ever been tortured with in, in a prisoner of war camp, right? So during those events, I'm pretty sure her blood pressure was skyrocketed. When she finally had surgery for it, she spent two days on morphine that they said if we gave her any more, she'd have to go to ICU. So that eye doctor didn't know that. Her doctor didn't consider that. And, and she was ready to make a snap decision by taking a single blood pressure reading and a recommendation of an ophthalmologist. Now, no doctor practicing the way we just described would have made that decision that hastily because they wouldn't have had to. Her doctor's not a bad person. She was making a decision because the numbers said so, and I can only see you for five minutes. Right, and that's where, as we're talking about these technologies and things, the people that are going to be replaced or organizations that are going to fall, the good news and all that is that good things are going to come out of them, and we will be wearing monitors like Fitbits or our smartphones or whatever are going to monitor our heart rate and our breathing and how we sleep. And so when you go in for that annual physical, like you said, instead of that nurse taking three minutes to, to check your vital signs, your doctor's going to have a printout. Of, of how you've functioned over the last year since you were last in there. And he's going to say, oh, Jack, you're not sleeping as good as you used to or whatever. You know, you're waking up yeah. and you've got sleep apnea. He's going to be able – so the, the guys that care, the doctors that have this skill and the pattern recognition and the concern for their patients, they're going to use these technologies and it's going to result in better health care, better treatment for people that are sick. I, I think that's going to be great. I want to touch – I want to jump into that too, but I want to jump back to a couple things. Some areas that I'm really concerned with, though, where I do think there's going to be problem areas, one of them is the military. And we've already seen this in the last you know, eight to ten years with things like the use of drones. Um, on, on the good side, it's going to mean less of our men and women have to get blown up in war. I, I think that's good. The bad side of that, though, is that I think that our country has always had the the politicians, no matter what they wanted to do, they always at least have to try and get the consensus of the people. And so they had to, you know, they, they knew that they could only push the soldier so far before they're going to say, I'm not going to do that. Well, if we get into a point where it's not a, where we don't have boots on the ground anymore or, you know, that good police officer or sheriff with some kind of a conscience, if he's not there anymore and if it's just a matter of the, the president can order a drone strike on some country, that worries me. You know, we don't we don't have that citizen soldier in there anymore, and I think that's a, a good recipe for tyranny. So that worries me. The other thing that worries me is the whole immigrant situation. You know, what's going to happen when, when we have this mass uh, unemployment, mass cuts in jobs, and we're not going to need all the cheap labor maybe that we've had in the past? And the politicians, you know, they support – a lot of immigration policy, one, because it buys them votes, which is power, and two, they're funded by the big businesses that want cheap labor. Everybody from you know cheap uh, computer programmers from India or guys that will pick lettuce from 
El Salvador, wherever, you know, businesses always want cheap labor. And when they no longer need cheap immigrant labor, again, how, what, what an impact is that going to have on the, the balance of our country and the whole political system? I, I think it'll be good ultimately, but I think that's going to be a real area where we're going to see some problems with social unrest and, and instability because of, because big business is not going to need immigrant labor anymore. And that's, that could be a problem for the U.S. Yeah, it really can, especially the flux in between, well, what do we do next? Because yes, so like transition period. For everything I see with automation, I see an opportunity. So agriculture is the perfect one. So when it comes to things like lettuce and oranges that are going to be mass produced, yeah, the days of immigrant lo- labor are gone. But when it comes to the the unique market, the boutique market, the higher nutritional density markets and things like that. That's where I see like the, the whole permaculture restoration agriculture world has these opportunities to create these small, instead of these giant conglomerates, these small companies, these local producers, uh, and including, you know, if we can get regulation out of the way, interstate trade and things like that as well with that. And so that's an opportunity, but it's an opportunity for a much smaller number of people that are much more specialized, much more educated, and 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 much more uh, a, a total shop. In other words, they're not just producing a product. They're producing a product. They're doing their own marketing. They're doing direct-to-consumer sales. They're building kind of this stacked model where the immigrant laborer that picks lettuce can be trained in, what, five minutes? Now maybe they're not as, as good as they need to be to keep their job because it's a tough job. That's the other, people don't realize how hard those guys work, but the actual process of you cut this, you put this in here, you really, you don't need a big education to do that. You don't need to understand anything about soils or nutritional density or anything. You just show up, there's a lettuce, you cut it. So while there's these opportunities, they seem there's for less numbers, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And, and again, I think it's going to be bad for a lot of people, but the people that are particularly in the permaculture, sustainable agricultural side of things, people with that kind of a mindset, get back to that Uber app. Right now, if I want to go find good food, it's hard to do. I got to, you know, I got to join a local co-op or I got to interact with some friends, try and figure out how to get some, you know, if I want rabbit meat for dinner tomorrow or I oh, want, yeah. I want, you know, duck eggs for breakfast, I got to go figure out where all that stuff is. If I have an Uber app, you know, a good food Uber app, I can go on there. I can say, oh, Jack, Jack's guy, you know, Jack's duck just laid an egg today. I want one of those. <laughs> and, you know, because it's all going to be on there. It, and, and again, yeah. it sounds crazy, but it's no different. You know, 10 years ago, you'd have said Uber would be crazy. How can you have a taxi cab just show up and you can pick whether it's a limousine or a Prius? Well, you just can't. And it's going to be the same way. And it costs less than the current system. Yes. Yes. More, more convenient, better service, and cost less. Same thing is going to be with food because everybody in my area is going to be on this little app, and I'm going to be able to say uh, – because the problem now is the distribution system. The day you get too many eggs or you get too many rabbits or too many quail or whatever, you know, you, you got to – it has a shelf life. You've got to get rid of it. Well, now you can put that stuff online, and you know, when you're peeking out, somebody else is troughing and back and forth. That's why it will make the system more, more – uh, more efficient, and I'll be able to bundle all that stuff together. There'll be opportunities, uh, at least in the short term, for people to want to deliver all that. Remember, there used to be people used to deliver groceries at home and stuff. And it's, you know, there will be the big stuff. The detergent's going to come from from Amazon, <clears throat> but why not a local person that goes around and picks up my quail eggs from Jack and my duck eggs from Fred and and my chicken and my chickens let, from let George? Me tell you, right, that exists. We 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 have people right now that do that that are contacting us and want to add our duck eggs to it, and we're like, sorry, 
sold out. Right. And so, again, that's when you get to that Uber app, though. That guy's going to know Jack doesn't have duck or quail eggs today, but Fred yep. does. And yep. I'm going to go pick them up from Fred, but I'm going to check back with, you know, uh, well, Jack it's scalable, right? Because right now I get people, uh, we have a farmer's market. We have a co-op. Would you do a discount? It's like, I'm not going to do a discount for you. Why would I do it? I've got them sold before they come out of the duck. But if there were 30 guys like me in Dallas right now, we would need to expand the market. And this is how you expand that market so that more people can do it. Because let's face it, not everybody has my marketing background. The reason we sell out so quickly is we built a market like that. Because we knew exactly how to present what we had to a point where we would build a loyal customer base. And then my wife is good at customer service and inside sales. So so it was natural. But there's a lot of people that could be really good at producing that maybe wouldn't be that good. But this would let one person basically be the marketing hub or technology be the marketing well, hub. And then all you got to do is worry about taking great care of your animals and making sure they produce a good product. Yeah, that, you know, that's the generic side of it, but I think too it'll evolve where it becomes, you can still have brands, and even with Uber, yeah. you know, a, an Uber car, if you're in downtown Manhattan and it's raining or a snowstorm, you're gonna pay a lot more for an Uber driver than you do if it's sunny out. And well, so, those, I don't use it much because I don't go anywhere anymore, but aren't the drivers rated? The drivers are rated, you have so, the record, yeah. and, and again, but, but it's, but so here's the deal though, if no one wants taxi cabs, the price goes down, not because some bureaucrat sets the price. The price goes down because the guy that needs that that next passenger drive, he needs money. He, he right, he lowers his price. Yeah. And when everybody wants a ride because there's a snowstorm or it's raining, then the price goes up again. Not because people are price gouging, but just because if you want a, if you want a cab, you have to pay more to get it. And what that does is that encourages the guy that's sitting home, you know, watching Oprah. He looks at his app and says, "I can make a hundred bucks." Yeah. For driving my cab right now. Yeah. And he gets in his car and he goes and relieves the situation. Same thing will happen with the food market. Do you mean that markets run between individuals who voluntarily do business with each other are more efficient than markets that are controlled by government? Is it's that crazy. what you mean? That sounds nuts. It's crazy talk. It's crazy talk. <laughs> There's no, there's no evidence that that works, Jack. You can't find evidence anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, and, and that's what's, See, people have been conditioned not to believe that. You know, my kids come home from school all the time. I mean, my, well, my kids laugh about it because they, they live with me. You know, that I, I've deprogrammed them. But they'll come home from school laughing. Hey, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, look at all these great things he did for us. You know, we'd, we'd be working in coal mines if it wasn't for the government. Well, we know that doesn't happen. Free markets make things better. And as people have access to those, they're going to make them better. And things like that food are going to work. If, if you have quality you know, quail eggs or duck eggs or whatever, you're still going to be able to brand them on Uber because you're going to be rated just like that driver. And your eggs, and when you when you have a dozen of them, you know, your price will go up or down based on the quantity you have to sell and what you want to sell it at. And people will be on a waiting list for it. And when they can't get Jack's eggs, eh, they'll go get Fred's. But they're not as good, but they'll get Fred's because they're available. And that'll, that creates more competition. Fred's going to say, what's Jack doing? How's Jack? It's so good. He's going to be trying, you know, he's going to try and be more like you. Competition will drive better quality, lower price, just like it does with Uber. And, and the revisionism of the history makes people unable to comprehend the future. That's why I have the biggest problem with it. For instance, if you ask most people what, what caused the 40-hour work week, they'd say the unions. No, Henry Ford did in 1926. That's, that was the person that made the 40-hour work week a, a, a standard thing because he knew that if his employees felt like, well, I know that my job is going to have regular hours – then I'm a lot more comfortable 
with having this job, and I don't need to go off and go to work for somebody else if, if, if employment lags a little bit here. And because what people don't understand, like the, the original concept of like telling somebody you have a 40 hour work week wasn't so they didn't work too long. It was so they got enough hours to make it worth having a job. And people like have a hard time with that. But then I want you to think about this. How many people, when you're looking for a job, say, I need a full time job. And before all of this expensive healthcare and all that, I, I remember when I was looking for my first job, you know, in, in the early nineties, healthcare wasn't that expensive. I wanted a 40 hour week job. Why? Because I could pay my bills with that. So what we're led to believe, right, is without the 40-hour work week, everybody would be driven to, to the ground, you know, for 50 cents an hour, 90 hours a week. When the exact opposite was the case, the market brought that concept to the worker to say, I'll give you my commitment that unless something goes really, really wrong and we have to lay people off, you have a full-time job. And in return for that, I want your loyalty that you're going to come work here as a full-time worker. But you'd never get that. From a modern classroom. Right. Yep. And, and how can you understand the future if you don't understand the past? Because we're making our decisions about what we can't do based on what we think we did. Yep. And, and the way that government will spin that, too, in these institutions, they'll say, hey, you have to belong to the AMA because if you don't, you know, you're going to get shut out of insurance programs. Or, you know, if you're a, a speech pathologist, you have to be part of the school system because otherwise you're not going to get you're not going to get you know, kids that you can help and blah, blah, blah. But the truth of the matter is, as we go to these technologies and we do have things like uh, Uber or other type of prox uh, proximity software, if you're a speech pathologist and you're good or you're, you know, again, a, a third grade math teacher, you'll be out there. You'll develop that reputation just like you do on you know, Etsy and Craigslist and all these other different things. People will be able to find you and you'll be able to charge the market price that you deserve, not the price that whoever, you know, the union or somebody else negotiated for you. And and then that's why the good people are going to succeed. Um, again, though, there's going to be a lot of displacement. There's going to be a lot of people that are going to lose their jobs, people that are lazy, people that have been hiding in the system, uh, a lot of bureaucrats that do nothing all day long. I think those people are going to lose their job. Um, that's going to mean higher taxes. Uh, you know, I have, I have in my notes there where I talk about in the 1930s, right, one farmer could feed about four families. Um, you know, today, what one farmer feeds about 155 families. I think we're going to see the same thing with labor, where if we do see, you know, 50% of the workforce get laid off or something, it's going to be one of those things where, you know, one person has a job and he's taxed where he has to provide a living wage to three or four other families. I think that's coming. I think we're going to see that living wage. Do you, do you see maybe that we're going to start having, Like some official form of like guaranteed income or something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's I'm not saying that. I'm for that, but I'm saying that looks like the natural evolution of this. That That's going to be for the people that are afraid and the people that are going to rely on, rely on government. They're going to say, we're going to provide you with a living wage. This one guy that is successful, we're going to tax him to the – to because, again, the, the guy that's successful, that entrepreneur, he he's going to have concentrated wealth. Just like Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or any of those people, Elon Musk, why did they have concentrated wealth? Well, they came up with a, a company or a technology or something that billions of people use and all that money funneled to one person. So, of course, they're going to have concentrated wealth. Well, if you're that really good school teacher, the, you know, the jobs are going to go to you. They're not going to go to the other you know, 15 school teachers that are mediocre. You're going to get all the jobs. And so the government's going to come in. They're going to tax that successful teacher to supplement or to even provide a living wage 
for the people that are laid off. I think that's going to, I do think that's going to occur. I think that's going to be bad for anybody that gets caught up in it. Uh, and again, this is not happening next year. No. And we're not, not going to talk about interest. See, I think there has to be some kind of new economic system for that to happen because I've run the numbers and they don't work. You could, you could tax the, the wealthiest, you know, 1% at, at 100% of their incomes and you can't do it for a year for $800 a month for every adult American. So, and that's not a living wage. So I, I, I wonder how they're going to eventually do this. I mean, right now they do fabricate money out of thin air. And it, it's conceivable with a, a blockchain-like currency that you could create a, a human value quotient, right? You, you, you create a certain amount of value by existing and spending money because let's be honest, part of what welfare is right now is your job is to spend the money the government gives you in the economy. I mean, right. nobody thinks about it that way, but man, I, my wife would, when she was a nurse, they had these people coming in on Medicaid. The family has like zero income in reality and they're getting money in and they have the little kids are in, you know, Dallas Cowboys camp or, you know, uh, beauty pageants and stuff like that. And usually they were running a scam. Basically they were, they were living together unmarried and one had no income and the other had a reasonable income. And then that money came from the government. What the government really is saying is here, take this money and put it into the economy. So I can see an economic system will shift that eventually says, like, that's your job. Your job is to go spend the money we give you. Right, yeah, your job will be to sit on a, on a, like an Indian reservation. You just, you just be good, stay on the reservation, don't, don't wander off, don't cause any trouble. Um, and I think the economics will work as the cost, as again, if we hit this deflation where the cost of goods and the cost to produce goods and services goes down because of automation, it'll make it affordable to have less people work. And so the people that do work will be taxed and it'll go to, subsidize these people they're living in whatever the modern modern day inning reservation some kind does, of housing does project the 20 hour work week replace the 40 hour work week like as an employer you know i might hire two people to do the job of one but as part-time workers and not so much so i don't have to pay health insurance which is what what's you know kind of happened now but do you may honest to god if if you had to go back to being a wage slave john do you really want to work 40 hours a week do you want to give up that much of your life? So if you could work 20 and still get enough money to, to do what you want to do, isn't that preferable? I mean, is that another natural consequence? That yeah, I think, that, have, I think it'll like, be job sharing or something. Job sharing. And again, these Uber type technologies will make that work. You know, if you need, if you need a, a receptionist that day or you need somebody to come in and program something for you, boom, you, you, there's, there's five guys that you have their, you have their resume right there in Uber. You just hire them. I think, well, I I think that job have, sharing will work. I have look it for at bartenders. My, my, there's this service my son signed up for when he, you know, he, you know, he works his shifts and he has shifts that he's available that he doesn't have a shift. And once you get in there, they verify that you have your, your license for the state to be a bartender. And it, it kind of works like eBay where when you go do a temp job, like a guy needs a bartender, his bartender flaked. He just orders one from the site. You get the thing and say, yeah, I'll take the shift. You go in and okay, you did a good job. You get like a gold star, right? And so eventually it gets to be like, I know I can, there's, there's five guys available right now that are all good. And so then the, the guy that runs a bar, especially not a chain, right? Uh, you know, like kind of a, an independent starts right. going, do I really need to have a staff bar, staff bartender anymore? Why, why do I need a staff bartender? Why do I have to deal with some guy that's always going to have some kind of a problem when I basically have a pool of labor now that I can just say, I need somebody tonight. 
and, now, and, and, that, and that's you know that's sort of the way the you know the electrical union and things like that do work, where you got you got a certified guy that you know is he, he's going to show up and do a good job. But you this don't is have the to have union out, right? This exactly. Is, you know, that's you don't the even point. want tenors union. Right. It takes all the middlemen out, and again, that's why I think we'll see the efficiencies. I and I think the uh, I think the overall price. I think we'll see the deflation, and the and the the price for the product and service. That's how to, the the actual operational cost will come down. Whether that actually comes down in real terms or not, because people choose to work less and so labor goes up or whatever, you know. But I, but I think I think that we're gonna. It gets back to hey, when my grandfather came to this country from Italy as a 16 year old, he was a, a day laborer. He came over and dug ditches, right? I mean, we don't have day laborers digging ditches now because we have, um, you know, caterpillar big yeah. backhoes to do it. So you know, it took 50 Italian guys. In the early 1900s, that come over and dig ditches. Now you have you have one backhoe or one little mini excavator does all that for you. So I, again, same thing. We're going to have these these technologies that replace these workers. We're not going to need them. The people that work, I do think they'll be taxed at a high enough rate where um, where we're going to put people on, on. Again, I call them reservations. And the sad part is, if you look at what's happened to the Native Americans, these people that are living on reservations, you know. The most worst lifestyles in the U.S. Highest rates of suicide. Yeah, yeah. Obesity, diabetes. Guys heart are disease. going in and buying Aquanet hairspray for alcohol on Sunday because they can't buy it. I mean, that's that's as bad as it gets. That's as bad as it gets, and it has nothing to do with them genetically or no. them as as a people or an ethnic group. None of that. It's because that they they've been forced to live on this reservation and. You know, we're and we well, we see that we're, we're moving there now, anyways. Right, forty six million people on food stamps. Uh, what, 60 and they million advertise. On, advertise for you know, They spend 60, taxpayer money to advertise the availability of taxpayer money. I think 60 million people on disability. All right. I mean, so we're we're, we're not we're not far from a res, we're not far from a reservation now, anyways, right? Well, I mean, I, I I have this friend named Patrick, and he he was like a friend 15 years ago, and he popped up about you know five years ago after 10 years hiatus. And he's just like IMing me on Facebook. And he says, yeah, I'm retired now. And this guy's younger than me. I'm like, and he's not that capable. He's not incapable, but he's not, he's not a guy that you would expect that would, you know, develop software and sell it to Microsoft or something. So I'm like, how the hell are you retired? He goes, I'm on disability. So he's getting like $1,800 a month on disability. He calls it being retired. That's the mentality there. I'm now retired because I get a check for the rest of my life. And and he's completely incentivized not to work because you know that if he comes up with some way to earn a little bit of money on his own, that take his eighteen hundred bucks away. So what that does that does reservationize him because yeah. there's a finite quality of life that can be purchased with that money, and you've now accepted it for the rest of your life that it will never be better than now, and that is. Exactly what the reservation system did to many native, not all, but many Native Americans. Absolutely, and I, I got I got to go back. I I way exaggerated that number. I just googled about 11 million people on disability, but I do think there's 40 million plus on food stamps. That is like 40 million. It's one in seven families today are on food stamps. One in yeah, seven. And so you figure at at 11 million on disability, that's that's well more than 10 percent of the eligible workforce, though. Well, and you start looking at, okay, let's not even look at eligible workforce. Let's look at actual workforce. We have, what, 330-odd million people in this country now, if we can scrape up all the people that are here that we don't know about. Okay, so how many of them are under 18? How many of them are over 65 and on SSI? How many of them are disabled, right? 
How many of them never held a job in their life? How many are on welfare? And then what's left? And then of that, how many of them that are working are on food stamps? Again, one in seven families. So you start to realize now that we aren't really that far away from everybody getting something for doing nothing anyway. Yep. And I and know you- people are going to be mad because, well, the old people worked for their Social Security. I'm not saying they didn't, but they still are now a draw on a system And the government didn't take their money and put it in a lockbox, right? They, the government spent their money the day they got it. They spent it the day before they got it. It's not there. It doesn't exist. Right now, I think it's like two workers to support one retired worker or three. Like, you, you know how they have those things on uh, TV, John, where they advertise, like, you could support this kid in a village. Exactly. And, and, and yes. like, they send you a picture of your kid when you, when you sign up for 50 bucks a month or whatever. They could literally, at this point, send you a picture of your old person. And that's not, right. that's not about the old person not deserving it. That's not what I'm saying. But it's about the mathematical reality that we're in. Yeah, it is. Oh, it, 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 or, you know, it's the old person. It's, it's the, the, the kid whose father doesn't want to take care of him. You know, single, single parents. Yeah. Um, it's bad deal. Again, and where, you know, where it's two or three workers now, I'm telling you, I think if we get to deflation and we get the right amount of automation and prices come down enough, you'll see where one worker is supporting three or four people. Instead of the other way around, it, yeah, it's, uh, it's 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 and, an incentive to me. So let's talk a little bit because we got to wrap up, dude. We're almost yeah. As it is, like it's an incentive for me then to say, okay, save money versus borrow money. Put your money into assets that are difficult to tax, like a little proactive app at the anarchy here. Like it's a lot harder to tax a tree than it is to tax a dollar. You know, I mean that's like the approach I see. Put your money into skills, to tools, pay off your debts. Own your stuff outright, and and yeah, they tax property, but I'd rather pay a tax on property than a tax on income, debt, money, investments, and property. Yeah, the bottom line is going to be you want to own you want to own tangible assets, and you're going to want to own some type of uh, some type of production. Whether it's your own, you know, you're a doctor and you're providing a service, and that's the production, or whether it's a farm and you're growing trees or you know, growing duck eggs, whatever it is, there's, you, you want to get as close to that source of production as you can. And then it, when you're controlling it under the umbrella of a small business or a corporation, you'll be able to set that up as a lifestyle business where, you know, and, and not that you're taking any tax breaks that you shouldn't be allowed to have, but whatever it is, you know, uh, if you're spending eight hours a day at work, Well, you're working in, in your home farm. So, you know, the, 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 the money you're spending on that, on the lifestyle that you're having while you're there, those eight hours is your home because you live there anyways. So that's, that's where people are going to succeed. And it's always going to come down to like it, like it has the entrepreneur is going to be the guy that benefits the craftsman, the entrepreneur, the artist, the person that, that the, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, if he had a, a 3D printer, imagine what he could do, right? It's because, Leonardo da Vinci was creative and had intelligence and, and was a, he was a genius. So the people now that have the creativity and the gumption to go out and do things, just like Leonardo da Vinci with a 3D printer, they're going to be able to use technology to bring them more clients or customers because they're going to be able to provide better products and services. Because as long as there's a human race, it doesn't matter as long as there's one or two people, people are always going to want to have some type of product or service. Yeah, I think three D automation can't automation can't produce it all. I think like three D printers are going to do what printers did. 
Do you remember when a you know a dot matrix printer was like a thousand dollars? Oh, absolutely. Right? Or when it was it was before the dot matrix even a daisy wheel. Remember the mm-hmm. daisy wheel? It looked yep. like an electric typewriter. And when you print print your your computer went bap 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 bap, and they were like a grand. And if you did a picture, it made a picture out of letters, right? And and today, you know, I have a a a, a printer. An all-in-one printer wired into, you know, my whole wireless network sitting in my wife's office that I can print from any device with that prints at a print quality that you couldn't even get in an office environment in 1995. And it, it was $75. That is where I think 3D printing is headed to where if I need something and you're a person that designs it, I can phone you up or Skype you or whatever and tell you what I need and maybe I send you some dimensions that are, and you design it. And then I pay you for it, and you hit print, it prints out of my house. Right. I mean, that's you want to take transportation down a notch. Think about that, because how many things do we want in this world that we can't afford the cost of injection molding for? I mean, uh, yeah, you, you, manufacturing costs. Have you ever thought, I think this would be a cool thing to make? Yeah, your, your, tool, your tooling is such a high cost. Holy crap, sixty grand just to make the first $1 product. Mm-hmm. And, and and to be able to go print, and then does anybody want this? Well, here's the thing: if only ten people want it, and it's ten bucks a piece, I just made a hundred bucks. And I have an evergreen product because anytime every anybody wants that one ever again, I can just sell it to them, and it prints out of their house. And I think people think 3D printers are for nerds, and they're never. That's what they said about every technology that ever came out. Computers. I remember my dad when I was talking to him about computers as a kid. I had a Commodore 64. Oh, those things are never going nowhere. You know, it's going to be people like you messing with them. No idea what was really coming. No idea. Yeah, yeah and they, and so things like that, the the the, the 3D printers, the, the sensors that we talked about earlier. I mean, think in terms of people that are they're doing permaculture or even just doing backyard agriculture. When sensors get cheap enough, whether a penny or a fraction of a cent, or when they're a fraction of a bitcoin. Uh, they will get, and they will get cheap. We know they'll get that cheap just because look at they how will. everything gets cheaper. They will. When they get that cheap, you can have a sensor on your quail that, you know, he'll know when he lays the egg. It'll tell you the GPS, GPS location of where he, where he was sitting when he dropped, where she was sitting when she dropped it. It'll monitor their temperature so you'll know that, you know, the vents need to be open on the coop or closed or if, if you're going to, uh, you know, be grazed. Uh, putting them out to, the, to pasture to graze for themselves or, or mob grazing or something. The gates will automatically open when the flock comes through. Well, yeah. All those things. That, that when, when sensors cost pennies, that's what it's going to be. Well, think and, about and this. So, People right now spend thousands of dollars to go get holistic management training from Alan Savory Savory Institute. You'll be able to download a program, upload a, a plot, and it'll, it'll, it'll actually just do it. You, you, you go get X number of cattle of this age and that age and this stage, start them here, and you put your fencing in and hit play. And people say, y'all, oh, it's too instinctive. You can't do that. There's intuition. There is, but you know what? It's, it, it, it's 10% intuition and 90% planning. And the 90% is better than anything we're doing commercially right now. Yeah. So automation is going to help all those things. It's going to help. We'll, we'll use less water. I mean, we already have drip monitoring systems and things like that. But what about when we can have sensors that, that know what's going on right in the soil? It knows the soil science. It knows if we have the right microorganisms. And if it doesn't, it alerts us to do something about it. 
pro, you know, production will go way up. We'll be able to produce better food. That better food will be produced in surplus. We'll go on Uber and sell it to each other. You know, you'll specialize in quail eggs. I'll specialize in duck eggs, whatever. It, it'll be a better system. And, and again, it'll be like the Indian reservation where, you know, the smart Indians have the casinos <laughs> yeah. and they're, and they're, they're, uh, they're ripping off the, the gringo. The smart Indians have casinos and only white people are playing the game. Right, right. And, that's, the, and the, that's the smart Indians, man. Right. And, and the dumb ones are, they're the guys that are the alcoholics. So it, that's the way the world's going to be. And, you know, I, I get excited thinking about it. People say, well, you know, again, how's that going to work? Look at it this way. Let's say I have two beehives in my backyard and I've got all these monitors and sensors on them. I know if they're getting mites. You know, I know if the, the humidity's too high or too low and, Little actuators open up and turn on fans and do different things. So my beehives are perfect. And so now instead of losing 50% of my beehives every year, you know, I'm not losing any. I have 100% retention. So that's, that's better. That's better for the environment. It's better for my bees. It's better for me. I have local honey that's right there. I don't have to go to the store and buy it. I don't have to go go to the store and buy it. But again, you know, I'm lazy. I don't want to do certain things. And, you know, just like in my house now, I have a dish uh, machine that does my dishes, right? I'm not doing my own dishes. The machine does it. Years ago, you had a, a cleaning lady that did that. Well, now you have just a washing machine that does it. Okay, so I got these beehives in my backyard. I still don't want to crunch the numbers. I don't want to set it up. I don't want to look at that data. All my stuff is Bluetooth transmitted through the Internet to Michael Jordan. He's monitoring my hives and a thousand others. I'm paying him, you know, a hundred bucks a year to do it or something. He's making an income. He's telling me, hey, John. Your bees, you know, it's ready to harvest the honey or your bees need a little medicine or go give them a little more sugar water. He's the expert. And so, they, you know, the Adam, experts, you know, yeah, those people, whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah. Th- those guys are still going to make money. And yet I'm going to be able to do also more things for myself. We're just taking out the middleman where now I don't have to go buy honey at Whole Foods Market or Walmart. I'm producing it in my backyard. It's closer to me. It's it's more healthy. And guys like Michael Jordan that are experts are going to find niche markets where they can operate. You know, maybe when it's time to extract the honey, I throw them all in a UPS box and ship them to him, and he extracts it for me, sends it back, whatever. You know, because I'm not going to want to do that myself. That he recommends that's here locally that comes out. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The local guy comes and does it because he's got a network. Yeah. I mean. I- I definitely see something like that being potential. I mean, if you look at like the best place this could end up, and I have my doubts that it will because I have my doubts in the capacity of the average person anymore, but if you did end up in a position where there was a certain amount of income security just for existing, if if people then had to earn whatever made it better, so to speak, and had to earn, and we didn't have all, like, okay, if the government said, yeah, there's a there's a certain amount of guaranteed income, but... Oh, wealth? No, no, that's, there's no welfare. No, no, no. You get, you get guaranteed. You know, if we actually did that, and I think it would take a very enlightened society to get there. But if we did, then people would find something to do if they wanted anything more, and that would just create, you know, a social capital exchange. I mean, if we actually freed people up to do good things, not all of them would, but a lot of them would. There's a lot of people listening to this right now that would say, if I could work 20 hours a week and pay my bills, and live in my neighborhood and walk around and help my neighbors, I, I do that right now. That's And that's why I'm optimistic. People say, well, how can you be optimistic? And I am optimistic because I think if people are doing what they're good at, what they're talented at, what they're, you know, what they 
their passions are, they're going to do a better job and they're going to want to do it. And when they're not working in some, you know, soul sucking cubicle or some repetitive job on a manufacturing line or down in a coal mine, when they're not doing those things to make a living, maybe they can do these other things. You know, there can be, you know, I'm a money manager, not because I need the money. I'm a money manager because I love what I do. I set up my company to do this. You know, Michael Jordan loves bees. He's a beekeeper. You know, you, 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 the things you, you do, your homestead, your podcast. It's impossible. Yeah. Hey, let's go over here and look at this fish. I want to talk about bees, right? That's what he loves. Why not do that? Exactly. And so that's why I'm optimistic. And, and you know what? Look at it this way. 20 years ago, you might have envisioned something like YouTube where you say, hey, there's going to be this thing where you know, anybody can load stuff up and costs will come down. We'll be able to produce videos. So I think you would have envisioned that. But most people, I, I certainly would have thought, though, that that would have been dominated by corporations because it's a great way to, you know, you make a product, you can put all your uh, manuals out there, how-to stuff. Uh, you know, all that stuff could be done by corporations. But you look at YouTube, all the good content is done by individuals, yeah. right? Yeah. And many of, it, many of them are doing exactly what you said for the corporations, even though the corporations aren't paying them. Aren't paying them anything. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You want to go out, if I, if I want to find about something about my Ruger gun, my pistol or something, I don't go to Ruger. I go to YouTube and, I, and some guy, you know, in Indiana tells me all about everything I wanted to know about it. And, and that's, again, I, I wouldn't have thought that would happen 20 years ago. Kids. I've learned things from 14 year old kids on YouTube. It's an equalizer. It's a total equalizer. So that's why I'm optimistic. I think if you give people the right tools, enough of them will rise up to the occasion to take advantage of it. And I'm optimistic knowing, you know, my relationship with the TSP community started around 2011. And, you know, just in that little bit of time, the amount of people I've met, the way my life's been enhanced, the things I've learned, the things that even, even the things that I didn't learn directly from you or from expert members or other people in the community I've met, it's caused me to think, of things a little differently or look at it in a different way. And, you know, just that little bit of interaction has made major changes. I know in my life and in other people's lives, and we're just talking about one podcast, you know, hmm. the, 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 the good news is, as I look at the TSP community and why I, again, I'm, I'm optimistic about the future. The future is going to benefit people that are entrepreneurial, people that are creative, people that are motivated, motivated people that can work, uh, in cooperative type organizations, people that are honest, people that want a sense of community, people that want to live out on their own. They don't necessarily want to live in a big urban center. That's who's going to be benefited by technology. And that is a TSP community. We're going to have all these tools to put together to help us interact with each other, create products and services that we all need. I, you know, I think it's been great. I, I, I wish I was 25 instead of 55. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, here my, here's my deal. You don't get to take any of my stuff away from me. I don't have now. You, you, you can even have my stuff. You don't get my my knowledge. If right. I was twenty five today and knew what I knew now, I would die a billionaire. Yeah, and that's and that's my message. I, I would say to the, the kids in the community, the young people. I, you know, again, anybody anybody under thirty is a kid to me. The people in the TSP community. You hear a lot of people complain, and there's there's a lot of injustice. There is a lot of pollution. There's you know scarce resources. Yeah, there are those problems. But the, t the future will be bright for the people that we're talking about that, that have the motivation, the creativity, and the honesty, and the desire to go out and create good products and services. And if you're a young person right now, go out and learn how to do something. Learn how to make something. Learn how to create something. Learn how to help other people. You know, products and services, that's what it's all about. Quit complaining. Get up off your ass. Go do something. And if you do that, 
I promise you the next 50 years are going to be very bright for you because those are the people that are going to succeed. Awesome, John. So as we finish up here, tell people about your site, about your podcast, things like that. Hey, uh, yeah, just as far as me, uh, my, my company, investablewealth.com, is the, um, the, where I offer my financial service part of my business. Um, I think what's most appropriate probably for, for your audience, though, is my podcast. I've been out there about a year and a half now, inspired by you, Jack. If I hadn't met you, I'd have never be a podcaster today. Um, that's been very helpful for me and my lifestyle, my business, everything. I think it's helped a lot of people that listen to it. Wealthsteading podcast is where I talk about market commentary. I tell you what's going on in the stock market. I tell you how I'm trading. I don't tell you how to trade yourself. I tell you what I'm doing. I give you the rationale for it. And then I also provide a lot of just wealth building principles. Hey, what you got to first do is you got to learn how to save and invest. Or you, you got to first learn how to earn an income and save. Don't worry about investing. You know, like we talked about today, go learn how to do something. I cover those things on the podcast. It's on iTunes, uh, you know, wellsteading.com, all the normal places. So I encourage people to listen into that as well. Well, cool, man. I appreciate you being here with us today, John, and I appreciate you serving on the Expert Council as well. Jack, my privilege. Uh, honestly, you uh, again. I, I met you in 2012, and you you don't remember that because I know you met a, a lot of people when you were in Salt Lake City that day. But I met you, and that uh, that helped me. You know, m meeting you and people in the TSP community. I was going to start my own business, and I was an uh, kind of late-blooming entrepreneur. All that stuff was already in gear. It was already moving in that direction. But when I stumbled upon TSP, and specifically when I met you, that, that gave a little twist to where I was headed, and it's been uh, been a great, uh, great ride for me. So I really appreciate it. Thanks for all you do for all of us. Well, thank you again. And, folks, I'm going to close up the show today. Today's closing song is actually a sequel to yesterday's song. Yesterday I played for you a song by the Bellamy Brothers, written in 1985, actually released July of 1985, called Old Hippie. It's one of my favorite songs. It always made me think of my father, and over the years it's made me think more and more of myself. Uh, lines like, he grows a little garden in the backyard nowadays for self-defense. Uh, this song is the sequel to that. It was released in 1995. It's called uh, Old Hippie, the sequel, and he's older than before, wondering what to pay attention to and what to ignore. I chose this song because I knew John was going to be on, so I played the first one yesterday after the Quail show that had nothing to do with it because these two songs are actually about shifts, shifts in uh, policy, shifts in politics, shifts in economics, shifts in society, and the adaptation that we struggle with as individuals. It's kind of a fun song. It's got some high points and some low points in it, but I hope you'll enjoy it. And if you haven't ever heard these before, Go back and listen to the first one, then listen to the second one again. I think it'll really kind of drive home some of the stuff we talked about today. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. He'll be 45 come Wednesday. His gray hair is getting thin. But he's still hanging in there Don't feel too bad for the shape he's in He's seen yuppies in the White House But he thinks they're gonna fail Cause he just don't trust a president That never has inhaled And he prays to God to stop his crime But it seems to no avail Well, he still loves country music He's been left out in the dark 
Cause they don't play Merle and George no more He don't know Billy Ray from God And he's heard of Woodstock too But it never could compete Cause he was there the day that Hendrix Played the anthem with his feet Back when all those grunge bands Couldn't even keep a beat Even older than before Wondering what to pay attention to And what should he ignore He's an old hippie Still adjusting to the change He's just trying to find some balance In a world gone totally insane He still thinks back on the 60s But not in the same way They built a wall to his war, then forgot the MIAs. And he's tried to be a nice man, but it's too much of a bore. Cause fax machines and cell phones ain't what he was put here for. And in a world selling sex and youth, he's the last old dinosaur. Even older than before Wondering what to pay attention to And what should he ignore He's an old hippie Still adjusting to the change He's just trying to find some balance In a world gone totally insane Well, he comes on home from work now Takes some time up with the kids Teaching right from wrong Hope they don't learn it the way that he did And his eyes are on the future But it's looking pretty sad And with every day that passes He becomes more like his dad He hopes that when this century turns around Things won't be so bad He's an old hippie than before, wondering what to pay attention to, and what should he ignore, he's an old hippie, still adjusting to the change, he just trying to find some balance, in a world gone totally insane, he just trying to find some balance, in a world gone totally insane.